Hey everyone, welcome to Human of All Trades. My name is Ian Ryan, and my guest today is the one and only Aaron Bedard. Aaron's known to many in the punk and hardcore community as the singer for Bane, but today we dig into much more than that. We talk about Worcester, Massachusetts, jobs, and bands, but Aaron also shares a lot of personal details about his life and upbringing as well. This is a long episode. We have a great storyteller. Strap in and enjoy. Thanks. Aaron Bedard, welcome to the Hello. podcast. Thank you. How you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Things are good. It's a, it's uh, a reasonably sunny day in Massachusetts. It is. Yep. It feels like spring has officially kind of kicked in around here. Windows are flung completely open. Wore shorts yesterday. So this is kind of my favorite time of year. I'm not a cold person at all. So as ridiculous as that is to live where I live, I really much prefer the warmer climates yeah and these days where it's like between 65 and like 75 where you can do shorts and a hoodie is yeah best outfit ever oh my favorite as well <laughs> so but yeah things are good things have been good kind of a busy year for me with all of this stuff going on with the band again it's been exciting yeah man that's a i mean we'll, maybe we'll get to that we i will think get we to might that, but <laughs> that's uh definitely stuff i want to hear about yeah because bane is back together yeah we'll get get that out of the way i know i listened to a podcast that dahlbeck did yesterday and like he used that term like there so bane is back together <laughs> but i hadn't quite wrapped my head around yet like in my quiet moments i've been telling myself that and sort of being so excited about it wanting to scream but hearing someone else just like put it out there in the world was like very cool because everything all the conversations that i've had have sort of come with a little bit of an asterisk you know we're not sure we're taking it slow we're going to see certainly we're not going to tour the way we used to I, you know you want to sort of dull any expectations that we're going to come sort of roaring back with a record and a six-week tour and do the things that we were sort of known for but it was so a I reality check it was something real to hear it and to put your brain there yeah to hear dollback say it was really sick like man fuck man <laughs> like there's no asterisks I'm I'm in Bane again, which is kind of unreal to me. Very exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. Why don't we start with where you grew up and what your what your household looked like? Did okay. you move around a lot? You know, brothers and sisters? Not a, not a ton, but we my mom and dad were divorced when I was very, very young, three years old. My brother wasn't even a year old by the time their their marriage had dissolved. And my mother raised us. She was 18 when she had me. So she would have been 22 with two kids, no real education. And yeah, trying to make it work in Worcester. And we lived in not the worst neighborhoods of Worcester, but we kicked it around some pretty rough areas. Um, I guess first was up off of Grafton Street on a street called Houghton Street, kind of near East Middle. And then from there, we moved to Vernon Hill, lived up there for years. I guess that was really about it. Now that I think about it, then she moves when I'm a teenager, she moves to Maine. So there's really only two main neighborhoods that I grew up in. And uh, 
yeah, it was me and my brother. We were poor, but didn't never felt like we were poor. My mom did what it took to have to allow us to have a sort of normal childhood with birthday presents and Christmas and family was a very important thing to her and had a couple of uncles and cousins our own age. And uh, yeah, it was just a lot of sort of, you know, running around Worcester, playing Little League, getting into trouble, skipping school. And uh, took me a long time to, you know, to grow wise enough to be able to look back and really see how hard it must have been for my mother to, you know, be able to finally fully put myself in her shoes and realize that what she did was pretty incredible. You know, my dad got every other weekend visitation rights that he did not take terribly seriously. And there would be huge gaps where he would just be gone. And then he would sweep back into our lives and be around, you know, for a couple months, maybe a year. And then he would be gone again and we'd be getting postcards. And I sort of, you know, we can get into this later kind of worshipped my father and it was very difficult for me to not understand you know his sort of intermittent coming in and out of our lives and then she also had to sue him in court for child support and we didn't know any of this like my mom did not involve Nathan that's my brother and I in sort of the the drama going on there she allowed us to have a fully loving relationship with our father despite all of his failings as a father she was not about to sort of set us against him and like just very quietly went after what she had a right to tried hard to make him be a better father to us. And I didn't realize this when I was a teenager, I remember overhearing a story at Easter or Thanksgiving or something. We were all at my grandmother's house, which, you know, we would get together at her house for all the holidays. And they were talking, it was my grandmother and my cousin, my aunt, talking about my cousin who was in an abusive relationship who was being abused by her boyfriend. And they said she should talk to Kathleen, which was my mother. If anybody knows about not taking any shit from an abusive husband, it's her. And like, I had no fucking idea. It made sense knowing the tendencies and the temper that my father had, like none of this was revealed to us through our childhood. My mom just took it all out in the lead and did not involve us in like what had to have been a really, really difficult ride for her. Do you know how old you were when she was like trying to take him to court for all that? I, I, I would have been younger than 10, I would okay. imagine. I think once I would have gotten into like 12, 13, I would have probably been aware yeah. and been able to hear conversations, things like that. This would have been a time where I just would have not understood what that even meant. You know okay. what I'm saying? But I think he was forced because we didn't, you know, we always had clothes and shoes and, you know, there was always some amount of money around. We, I never felt like, where am I going to eat next? Or, you know, how right. am I going to get clothes for school next year? That but was do never, you know if that was you know. legit, like it was actually okay? Or if she just put on that front? It's hard to say, right? How, it, it is really, really hard to say. I know we were poor. I knew, I know that when I was, Seven years old, I was in a rock fight with a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. We were riding our big wheels around throwing rocks at each other. And a kid got a little carried away and he pushed a boulder off of a a porch railing directly onto my head. And it split my head open. I had to go home. I had to walk the two houses down to our apartment to like go upstairs and tell my mom. And we didn't have a car. We had to go to our neighbor and ask for a ride to the hospital. And again, it didn't. 
I didn't realize it until some years later how fucking crazy that is that we were yeah. we did not you know my mom was like taking the bus to her jobs to she was working I don't even know what job she worked but she was also putting herself through physical therapy school like we had babysitters oh. all the time my mom was like trying to make a career for herself and she couldn't afford a car you know yeah. If we went to the movies, if we went downtown to the movies, we were walking. We were walking down there, man. So yeah, so we there wasn't a lot of money, but she was heroic in not allowing us to, you know, to really feel that day to day. The you know, apartments were always nice. And so, but it was hard for sure. I mean, it was, you know, kids are mean at school, you know, they they can get a sense of you don't have cool clothes or where you come from, and that stuff started for me seems i was more aware of not being cool and being sort of outcasted at an age maybe younger than you're supposed to but i'm not sure you know i haven't taken i haven't taken <laughs> the temperature of 100 kids how old were you when you started to feel very awkward and like you were being made fun of and you were being pushed out of social circles but for myself it's a early memory of just feeling like i don't quite fit kids are mean and yeah. uh yeah that was yeah, that was that until, I don't know, until, oh, I guess then at, at 13 years old, <clears throat> yeah, 13 years old, 12 years old, I start running around with some bad kids in the neighborhood up in Vernon Hill, breaking into houses and breaking car windows and stuff. Like, they were a couple of years older. I was very enamored with how tough and cool and fearless they were. And uh, we ended up breaking into my landlord's house, who is our downstairs neighbor, and also a very, very good friend of my mother's, like would come up for coffee and tea several times a week to sit and talk about Ooh. life. We break into their house. I don't know who the mastermind of this is. I'm pretty sure I was just going along with it. When kids are, when you're breaking in, all right, are you breaking in to steal stuff or are you breaking in just well, to, we're for the thrill? <laughs> it's so funny to think about now because what, like, we didn't have a fence in our lives. Like there wasn't like right. a guy who was like, bring us the diamonds. I don't understand. And Worcester was not, didn't have the pawn shops for sure oh, then that it even has now. And there are not I many. Understand <laughs> it. Like I was such just a go along for the ride type of kid then. And these kids, they couldn't have been that much older than me. It's not like I was hanging out with 16 and 17 year olds. They were probably, you know, maybe 13 and 14. I don't remember I don't remember any of their faces. I don't remember anything about them at all other than they were like tough and wore jean jackets and swore a lot and smoked cigarettes. And I was just I would have followed them to the ends of the earth. So we break into my downstairs neighbor's house, get caught, and my mom is just so at her wit's end with me that she sends me to live with my father, who now lives in a small town in Virginia. I am just like sent away. I can't handle your bullshit right now. I'm not even 14 yet. And I've already like broken this poor lady's spirit. She sends me to live with Who my father. Who you look back on now and is like holding shit together by a thread probably yeah. six out of seven oh, days man. of the week. Dude, the reveals that I have coming like in my late teens, early 20s, where I'm able to really get the fuck out from up my own ass and see what I put that woman through. is Those are not easy days to be like fuck man i was not easy not an easy kid and neither was my brother by the way 
but I get sent away <clears throat> and go live in a small town for the first time and get put into a school system that at that time in Worcester, the school systems were just a mess. There were no after-school programs. There was no funding for sports. You went into school. The classes were huge. They shuffled you out of there. You got on the bus and went home. And in Virginia, I go to this school, this middle school, where the classes are like 12, 13 kids. The teachers know every kid's name. They know your parents' name. They know your strengths and weaknesses and your interests. And you could stay at that school doing shit after school until eight at night, like any club, anything you're interested in sports. There was like a Dungeons and Dragons club. You could make stained glass windows. What is your it brain? Like, how's your brain dealing with all of that? Number one, like probably the lack of privacy. Shock. At first it was weird because it was also a very sort of wealthy community. And these kids had nice clothes and their parents lived in houses. And I, my dad was still just like renting, you know, a little place he was working as a, printer in a print shop and so there was like a economic divide there that was greater than anything i'd ever recognized before maybe i'm getting to that age now where that sort of stuff starts to make sense but i'm kind of the tough kid and i have an accent and i don't really give a fuck so a lot of kids are sort of enamored with me and i'd never been impressive to anyone before you know this is the first time okay. where people are like, oh who's this kid from massachusetts so that was sort of fun but then i just sort of like kind of just like settle into doing well at school for the first time in my life. Really? And making some some decent friends around the neighborhood and kind of, and start playing sports, start playing basketball, start playing football for the for the junior high school team and sort of just like kind of settling in, doing well, like getting good grades for the first time. I have a funny story where I remember taking a test, getting a good grade and coming home and sort of marveling to my dad and my stepmom that I knew all the answers and she laughed. She said, yeah, because you studied last night. Don't you remember you sat and that's why you <laughs> studied. I'm like, I never thought of that in all of my time going to elementary school. It was never quite revealed to me that the study is the work to, you know, to be able to do right. well. And there's, she there's steps to this. There's a, there's yeah, a whole she, process. She's like, they have it laid out. She's like, of course you did well last night. You stayed up and you learned all the answers. And I was like, Oh, whoa. So suddenly it was almost kind of fun to to be doing well at school. My dad was impressed. My dad was somebody I always wanted to impress. So it was, uh, that was a kind of a strange two years that I have there between, I guess, 12 and 13 or 13 and 14, I guess. Can I jump in quick? Please. What, what was relationship like with stepmom? He was around pretty much the whole time. I don't remember a period of my dad not having her around. Now, who knows what that means about what was going on with him and my mom. I was too young to understand any of that. Her name was Dawn. And uh, it was good. I don't have any sort of bad memories about her. She was tough. She came from a big, tough Irish family who had a bunch of brothers that were in and out of trouble, that would have to borrow money, that were going to jail, that rode motorcycles. They all drank hard and they fought hard. She was from a big Irish family from Grafton. And she had a bit of a toughness to her too. Okay. You couldn't bullshit her. You couldn't lie to her. And she sort of demanded some degree of respect. But she loved us and did, never tried to overstep. I remember my mom sitting us down and sort of wanting to make it clear that she was not our mother. 
and didn't want there to be any confusion in our heads. And it, and she never like, she never tested that. Dawn never made that sort of confusing for me. You know, she completely understood, but she loved us and she celebrated our successes and would be disappointed in our, my many, many failures. But yeah, she continued to be a force in my life all through the life of, of, of my father, like a really, truly good person. Yeah. That's, I mean, it, I, you've for sure sounds like there's been supportive women the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, that's very, very true. I mean, I lost my mom too young, but she was all of my best qualities come from her for sure i'm able to see that now even though as a child she made me fucking crazy i couldn't appreciate any of the things she was trying to provide for me and all i wanted to do was be around my dad who let me do all the things that my mother tried to keep me from getting involved and my dad just let us run fucking wild so of course i worshiped the ground he walked yeah. on but as but, a father he wasn't a very good father it's that that's the thing we call growing up though right that's just... yeah yeah this is <laughs> being able to acknowledge those things. Oh, that's not yeah. the right thing. This is not what I should be doing just because it's I know. <laughs> I know. And just my mom, she was such, you know, she's very young. She was a complete idealist. She came from the hippie generation and really believed in, you know, treating people well and really believed in the idea that people can change the world. And she sort of started that on us by really being kept being very aware of not allowing us to watch a lot of TV, not allowing us to gravitate towards violent media, really trying to pass her ideals, her vision of the world onto her, her children. And it yeah, only that held up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But still like, so, I mean, you say coming from a, a hippie generation, right? But she's not this kind of stereotypical hippie of, no, the world should be a great place and we should all get along. Like she's coming from a hard working, like if we want if we want the world to be different, we have to do the work to change it mentality. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yep. She came from a hardworking family. Um, I don't think there's a single homeowner in that bloodline. You know, they this is a hardworking family that just sort of were stuck with a lot they were given and never quite rose above that but accepted what they had and loved what they had and loved each other just so fiercely where everything came down to just family and support and being there for each other. And that's, uh, yeah, that's baked into my DNA for sure. So you're with dad and Dawn. I'm down in Virginia with dad. And for the first time in my life, there are no restrictions. I don't have a curfew. I can watch whatever the fuck I want to watch on TV. I can stay out with my friends and not even have to come home as long as they know I'm sleeping over at this kid's house. It's just like my mom, <clears throat> you couldn't, you couldn't be, if she couldn't call you from the porch to come in, that was it. You're too far. You're in trouble. You know, right. My mom had a very overbearing motherly style. This it was her style. She, she, she adapted at a very young age. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what it came from, but she was like, laying out our clothes for us when we're, you know, when we're eating breakfast, like everything was kind of being taken care of by my mom. I get down to my dad's and he's like, you don't comb your hair before you go to school. And I was like, <laughs> my mom combed my hair. And he's like, clear your plate from the table. What are you doing? I would just get up and go. He'd be like, excuse me, put your plates in the, 
in in the sink. I didn't know about that. I literally did not know that was a thing. And like, put your clothes in the laundry basket again. Yeah. Okay. Like, this has always been done for me. This is all fucking new to me. So I get a lot of skills that I really needed. That is kind of a danger. I can see it in my brother who did not have these two very important years of like fostering some real independence from that motherly style. And that my brother was sort of very soft and very much a mama's boy and, you know, expected other things to be done for him. Yeah. I have these two years that I think are at a very important age where like, I'm given a ton of freedom. I am taught that you cannot be, um, untrustworthy and a liar and sketchy mm-hmm. or a snake you will be punished in a very severe way for that i am really taught that like you have to fucking show some respect around here right. and my dad was not the one you could not lie to him you could not fool him you were not a step ahead of him the way that i always felt like i was with my mom you know so i have to learn some really really hard lessons but at the same time i'm given a ton of freedom a ton of independence and learn to just sort of like trust in myself a little bit you know right well you're it's you're finding that balance right you're getting that you're getting the freedom but you're also getting the responsibilities that yeah that weren't there before so you you have to you have to weigh the both sides yeah and you know i'll contend that it's probably the most important thing that happens to me in my life is that i'm sent down there for two years to sort of just learn an alternate way of of existing and um but I'm still coming home on holidays to see mom come home for big chunks of the summertime. Okay. And the one summer I come home and I get romantically involved in with the girl across the street. Oh. Yeah, now I'm 14, so all that stuff's kicking in and uh does she have a name? Yeah, her name was Michelle. Okay. <laughs> and uh <laughs> I didn't want to be in Virginia anymore after that. I like of course it just not. everything. All I wanted to do was to kiss Michelle some more. And I remember telling my dad that, and he was just mind blown that I would want to go back there because I had been doing so well in Virginia, both in school, in that school system. I'm playing sports. He was just, he just couldn't believe that I'm going to leave all this to go back. He can't tell me, don't go. You know, he, I think. It might have even been nice, the idea of not having a kid around. Maybe. I, I don't know. But I do remember a very serious sit down where it's like, are you sure you want to do this? You're doing so, so well down here. Again, when you're 14, none of that stuff means anything. You All can't you see can the forest know. for the trees. Yeah, it's, oh. it is what it is. But like, I mean, just to touch on the sports thing, right? So sure. when you're playing on teams, like you're you're a lot of – you're building a lot of trust in teammates and you're yeah. learning their things that they're good at and the things that they're not. And you're playing off that and they're playing off you. So like, there's a lot of whether you're hanging out with those kids all the time or not, like there are, there's a, there's another element of human understanding going on there. Yeah. Um, are you, true. are you recognizing any of that at that time? Or is it just like, no, this is just what I do. And I do not remember the feeling of like, I am a part of a unit that we move together we fail together we succeed together i do not remember that in sports at that time were almost sort of an extension of what little league had been to me okay when i was living in worcester as a child i loved sports i loved being on a team i liked the winning and the losing but i don't remember the camaraderie 
aspect. The way that I am able to look back on later years with skaters and hardcore kids and feeling like I was a part of something that made right. sense. It is a completely different feeling in me. I'm just still like, yeah, I don't even really know what to pin it on. But yeah, I played basketball. I played football. I was actually pretty good at football and looking like I was going to make the high school team in Virginia. Like it was looking like I was probably going to be able to get on a junior varsity team there. But uh, what yeah. What position were you playing? I was wide receiver. Okay. Yeah, I could jump really high. So they could throw the ball to me and I would jump up and catch it. And I was always pretty athletic. But yeah, there was something else going on in Worcester that just sort of grabbed my complete attention. And I don't remember ever being like oh i'll be playing football versus i'll be going to a high school where you know there's no sports i, I don't remember even weighing that out it was so just like i'm going home no nope. um, michelle is here this is michelle's be... across the street and my mom was ready to have me back she was excited to have me back which i think is natural you know sometimes i look back and I'm like why didn't mom sort of force me to stay she could see how well i was doing my mom came down to Virginia to like see me act in two plays like she could see Whoa. how how I was thriving down there but still she wanted her kid back you know she wanted yeah. her son back wanted to see me grow and probably it felt like two years was enough I had changed I'd become a much more respect respectful person and uh and it's got to hurt yeah. as a being a parent now like it's got to hurt seeing your kid do well without you there I never fucking thought about that though. Yeah. I mean, I, not to be like a, you know, coming at it from a selfish mindset or anything like that, oh. but like just the idea that, oh, like this is my blood. This is the person that I've put their whole life into them and I've done everything right. I can for them and they're doing better without me. Like that's got to, there's, yeah. there's got to be some, some deep, that's true. deep stuff. No, no, for sure. Anyway, we're 14. We're, we're 14. We're looking at high school in Wormtown. High school's right around the corner. I got one summer, and I meet a kid in the neighborhood who's got a skateboard, and he brings me to his house, and he's got an older brother who's got punk records, and we start listening to music, and it was just like... It's all downhill. I mean, everything changes. Like, literally, there's a feeling in my life that at that moment, all the lights come on where before that it, the lights are off and I'm just sort of stumbling through and I don't know what I really like, who I am. Nothing is quite speaking to me where I'm aware it's speaking to me. And we listen to the sex pistols and this kid is cool and he's got a skateboard and he's wild. He's got dyed hair. And I just, yeah, just like, you know, the way I, I tend to talk about it is like all the lights came on suddenly I couldn't wait to listen to that record again the next day and the day after that. And it was, feels like the sort of thing where it's all I'm thinking about and I need a skateboard. I mean, it is just life or death that I get a skateboard. And I don't remember how I got my first skateboard, but we spend the summer just every day listening to records and skating around. And already I'm making my mother fucking crazy because <laughs> She's not used to the independence that I've come back from Virginia with. Right. She's trying to find a middle ground where I am just like, no one tells me when to be home. 
you're also 14 and you're exploring more stuff. You want to experience more of the world outside your neighborhood, right? Totally. So is any of the transition like positive from her viewpoint, do you think? Like the cleaning up after yourself, does that carry over? Or as soon as you're you're back in her house, like it doesn't go in the hamper, she gets left on the table. I don't remember there being too many conversations of like, well, I'm really glad that you've learned how to do this. (laughs) Kudos to your father. We were just at fucking war. Some of that's just being that age, right? Absolutely. And I was an extra that age. I mean, for sure. I was always defiant, independent, stubborn, and crafty. And all of those skill sets are really starting to to sharpen now. And and I'm fueled by an idea that comes baked into this music. You know, I'm like, rebellion is a thing, is like a religion. Like, you fuck being told what to do like Mm -hmm. i am completely invested in the ideas that are being screamed at me by black flag and the circle jerks and suicidal tendencies like these are my school books for sure i'm now 14 i don't even make it through high school dude i my high school experience is about three weeks so where Um, where do you where do you go for high school south high okay off at that time it was tough there was a stabbing on day two of school. Me and Ooh. my friend who also went there were getting beaten up and chased constantly through those hallways because we're freaks, man. We're writing on the back of our jacket. We have pink hair. We're putting safety pins through our earlobes. Like, we're wild. And this is 85. You know, it's still a pretty shocking thing yeah. to be doing that stuff. And this is a tough inner city high school and all I want to do is skateboard. I mean, all I want is to be on my, I don't learn. I remember I learned one thing in high school. I remember the first class of the first day, I tell myself, okay, now how to do this. I did this well before. I'm going to buckle in. I'm going to pay attention. It was Spanish class. And she teaches us, this stayed with me my whole life, como se llama usted, which is, mm-hmm. what is your name? And I swear to you, Ian, I swear, I don't remember a single other lesson <laughs> from school. <laughs> Like, it's almost like a switch in my brain shut off after learning that. And I never learned anything else. This is all like, I need. I got this piece. Yeah, I'm good. That's it. That's it. I've never used it once. But yeah, high school and me. I mean, those classes, we didn't even have walls at South at that time. There were. What? There were partitions. Like, you, like the classes were just like partitioned off. I, I just remember the teachers having to scream to be heard. There was just no order at all. I was completely out to lunch, wasn't paying attention to any of it. And just start skipping school. Truant officers are coming to the house so quickly. I'm, I stayed back seventh grade. So I'm actually, I guess, 15 at when I'm starting high school, 85 would maybe 15. Yeah. But I think within three weeks, I'm just, no, I'm not making any even feeble attempts to go there anymore. I am just, I mean, I run away from home that year. I am just like done being a good kid trying to make my mom happy i'm fucking done but to uh, make to make things happen at 14 15 and skateboards even if they're cheaper then are not free we got to have records we got to have skateboards yep. so what are you what are you doing for for cash i don't remember i don't rem- i mean i cuz i can remember my first job and i remember why i got that first job and the things that I wanted to buy for that job 
don't come along until 1987. May I guess maybe 86. But there is a period where I am just fucking dead poor and having to just make do with whatever I have. And it was a time where I didn't need much. I guess my skateboard must have held up or I had enough friends maybe. But I don't remember. Certainly my mom was not giving me anything like an allowance. But I remember, <laughs> I mean, I guess I could tell the story now. I remember there was another girl who was sort of in our friend group and she worked at a market on Green Street. She worked, just ran the, the register at a, at a market on Green Street. And one day we were in there messing around with her and she like gave us $5 from the register. Just like us, it's like showing off, and I started extorting her, just going there <laughs> of course repeatedly you did. to Asshole. get that five dollars, or I'm gonna tell on her. Like, yeah, I just sort of like had a survival instinct to be able to, yeah, I don't know, get a slice of pizza and play some video games or something. But I don't. There was not a feeling of ever having twenty bucks in my pocket or anything like that. I don't know how I'm. Cause I'm starting to go to shows. I'm starting to like get into cars with friends and drive to Boston to see bands. And I don't, I don't know how I sort of financed that two years. Cause my mom was not breaking me off cash. It wasn't even, you know, I, you know, you would hear stories from kids. Oh, for my birthday, you know, everyone gave me, I got a hundred bucks or whatever. Right. That was, I never knew from that at all. Okay. So I don't know. I just think I was like fucking figuring it out. I remember once having to, <laughs> telling stories i remember once the other girl michelle who lived across the street her dad in his basement had a uh he had a whole system for re recycling cans he would just like had like empty cans stacked to the ceiling that he would eventually bring in and recycle and get the nickel for them or whatever yeah. i don't know where he was getting them from there was not a feeling that he was digging them out of the trash but somehow he had access to empty cans and they were his basement was filled with them and i remember going down into there one day while he was at work on a work day making several runs to a recycling place so that i could get money to take a bus to enfield connecticut to see <laughs> suicidal tendencies play like by myself like took a bus to enfield what i did from the bus stop how i found the venue i have no fucking idea but i went by myself and saw suicidal tendencies played awesome. like so just to, by these cans give a little perspective on that to people that may not be familiar with the area right so we're going west to springfield so worcester is central massachusetts it's basically the center of the state yep that's but doesn't doesn't always play well with other major cities in the area so providence is real close but it's not like you can just hop on a bus to providence nope, nope not then Boston, you have commuter lines, but they don't run super regular when I was growing up. No, I don't think there was any commute. I mean, the Union Station is is a wreck. It hasn't right. even been renovated. Right. You would go, you, you would go to that parking lot on the hill up behind like Kenmore Diner kind of thing. But like that was yeah. that was that. And then there was Springfield. Like you could get take the take the trailways of the Greyhound bus. Like you could go to Springfield. And Springfield's getting to the like the entrance of Western Massachusetts, and then Enfield yeah. is basically a straight shot south, right over the border, yeah, in Connecticut from Springfield. 
but like we're talking <laughs> two or three hours of travel for somebody a young teenager without without a car and scraping together bus fare right right and i remember just waiting at the bus station after the show and knowing like it it's not going to come till six in the morning or seven in the morning, just sitting outside a closed down building. And like would have done it every other day if I could have done it, you know, like I was right. so you just, I, you had to go see suicidal. You had to go. I had to, be there. I had to be there. I remember that feeling a lot back then. Of just, there was no other way you had to figure it out. I remember being stuffed into the back of cars where you couldn't fit another person in that car. I remember having to sneak into shows because I didn't have any money. But yeah, there was just a feeling that there was no other way. And my poor mom, you know, she's trying to have some control in her household. And I am just a bomb inside that idea where she would lock me out of the house. Like she would say, if you're not home for curfew, that door will be locked. There'll be a pillow on the porch for you, but that door will be locked. And she like, I don't remember. Did it happen? She didn't. Well, she would lock it, but I would bang on the door and bang on the door, and she would eventually come and let me in, and we'd be yelling. It was a fucking mess, man. It was really a bad, a bad time. What's your relationship like with Nathan at this point? It's funny. When I was thinking of this interview yesterday, I was like, man, we're going to have to talk about Nathan. My brother died two months ago. I don't know if you're aware. I didn't know that. Yeah. Sorry, man. No, thank you for saying that. And uh, I wasn't a great big brother to him. I was, you know, he worshipped the ground I walked on, and I was very territorial about all of the things that were mine. I didn't want to share with him. I didn't want him to be a part of any of the things that I found. I didn't like when he played with my toys kind of thing. I don't know where that came from. I don't think it's that uncommon for the older brother to just really want to just sort of blaze his own trail. But I did that probably to to too difficult of a degree. There are a lot of memories of my brother just really wanting to be around me, really being happy when it was he and I's time. And there was very little of that, sadly. And that, you know, he stays with mom when I do those two years in Virginia. And then I come back and start finding things that just are not for my little brother. They're for, they're for me alone, you know? Okay. And, uh, yeah, he's very much a mama's boy and sort of afraid of a lot of things in life and just sort of was kind of a little developing a little slow. Well, I guess not really. He was 12 years old. How fucking much is he supposed to develop? I just remember feeling, you know, there was a three-year age gap. But in those years of my mid-teens, I remember feeling like he's still a little kid, you know? Right. Not like he's, until... following, he's following the blueprint that realistically your mom had laid out. And you were not. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, yeah. He's wild in his own way and he's acting out in his own way. And it's gonna come to light, okay, you know, soon that like we would all been abused as children and a lot of the things that we're doing are a response to real trauma that we were suffering through as as young people. Um, he acted out in ways of like a lot of stealing, like he really just like was a kleptomaniac and Okay. Had been, uh, yeah, just couldn't couldn't stop stealing stuff. Uh but I just lost my train of thought. What do? Oh, we're Sorry. just talking about me as a Tina. Um, yeah, you're going to shows, suicidal, yeah, not and, having any and money. Yeah, just sort of like there's that 
15, 16 years old where I'm just sort of trying to figure it out, bouncing off the walls. And Are you my feeling play. accepted in punk rock and hardcore or is it just at yeah. this point, is Common. it just the rejection of everything else? It's coming. It's not quite yet. I do remember there being a real period of like on the outside looking in, being very intimidated by the older real punk dudes downtown, looking at them as a as a way to be able to because I wanted to know more about bands. I wanted to know where the shows were. I needed more information. I didn't know how to get this. And you know, I'm not even at the point yet where I'm like looking at thank you lists. You know, I'm listening yeah. to college radio putting my shitty tape deck up against the speaker and pressing record and then having to sort of make sense of this noise and like looking at records through the punk hardcore section in strawberries downtown which is about you know two inches thick right and half of that stuff isn't even really punk records it's like the b-52s and the violent femmes they didn't have another place to put it so Close yeah, enough. and I don't know how to navigate that world, and I'm so hungry. You know, I know the sound that I like. I can't tell you yet. Well, this is what I like versus what I don't like. I'm still not even quite able to figure it out. But I know the more aggressive, the more angry, the more explosive it is, the more it speaks to me. I know when I hear Black Flag, it sounds you know it's different to me than the B52s, but I can't quite explain it other than just well, like on a very visceral level yeah so i'm trying to make friends i'm trying to i remember like you know the punk kids the older punk people would roll their eyes at us they'd call us posers they didn't want us around i'm very young at this age and i remember like walking by them slowly so that i could see the buttons on their jackets like get as much information like that's what awesome is i like that move what yeah. is this really needing i just fucking needed to know so there's about a year, maybe not quite a year, where I'm fumbling around in the dark and then slowly through a, a real tenacity of being downtown every day, skating, being around these kids, some people start to sort of accept us. And there was a, you know, a huge personality at that time, a girl named Kimberly Nault, who was maybe only a year older than me, but very much accepted and really baked into the scene with like the 18, 19 year olds. And uh, okay. yeah, she took us under her wing and suddenly like, yeah, I'm, I'm able to have the conversations with people that I had been dying to have where she's telling me about minor threat and what, what is special about minor threat. This is seven seconds. This is DRI. All of the stuff is starting to happen. Okay. And yeah, that's just, you know, but it's finally having fun. someone open up to you and and share the stuff that you've been seeking. You're trying to yep. get this information, and she's the first totally. one to totally. be open enough. She under, she explains to me what it means to make a band that you can just do it yourself, and that we book our own shows. And all of a sudden, it's all the pieces are all starting to come together. And I'm, you know, in a very small way, I'm a part of that. I'm I was there for like the meeting that we had to be able to start having shows at the Quinn Sigmund village community center. Like I'm like one of eight people that went and sat down with these people at a board and like gave them made our case for wanting to be able to do all ages shows there. You know, how did the, you get to be one of those kids? You just showed up. I mean, I was, those were, you know, there was like two different social groups at that time. There were the older kids 
that were had been going to shows and sort of had had established themselves and they seemed to more just like to drink and to party and to be wild and then there was the group that kind of revolved around kimberly that were a few years younger and they sort of seemed interested in kind of making something happen in worcester they started forming bands they were doing fanzines they took great pride in the design of flyers i remember that being a huge thing making sure the flyers looked cool and we needed a place and I don't know who it was that was like, we just start knocking on doors and we find somebody to tell us yes. But we went to a community meeting about being able to have shows there. And I, I, That's awesome. I mean, I, don't, I didn't stand up and make a case or anything. And I think I barely understood what was going on, but I was there for it. That's awesome. I, I mean, there. in my head, this is falling under these, these categories of things that I was not a part of, but this, like the old guard being kind of the the more traditional punk kids and then yeah. you and kimberly's crew being the hardcore kids being the we don't want to just say fuck society and whatever like we want to form something we want to be a part of something and we want to grow it so yeah. kind of that that 100%. separation but yep straight edge was introduced to me in all of those sort of same conversations at a very very early age it was suggested that that this could be a smarter way to live our lives based on what we are seeing from the punk kids from the other people around us that doesn't seem to be all that interesting or progressive to us wow yeah yeah and then and then i'm in and now you know i'm already starting to think about forming my own band and i'm starting to really be able to determine this is the kind of bands that I like these, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I'm not really that into. And it's all starting to take shape. And so we're in, happened. you know what year we're in? We're in 87. We're in 86. We're in 86. Okay. And then youth of today puts out break down the walls that, that year, 1986. I, that year I see crippled youth who later become bold for before okay. ever hearing youth of today. The first time I ever heard anything like that was seeing Crippled Youth live at a show in Lupo's. They were 13 years old at the time. They were younger than I was, which was really mind-blowing to me. And they were this energetic, outspoken, fiery fucking band wearing basketball sneakers and big hooded sweatshirts. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And I talked to the bass player after their show. And he told me three bands. I'd never heard of any of them. He told me Youth of Today the crow mags an underdog and yeah. i found the age of quarrel like that week and uh i mean at this point age of quarrel must have just come out just come out like they hadn't even played boston yet. i saw them play boston for the first time after getting a hold of the record like it's all happening right now everything is very very immediate and I'm 16. I'm just like the perfect fucking age. Like, and this kid from Crippled Youth seems to have like a main line <laughs> to, to. I mean, the yeah, he's, yeah, he is. He's from Connecticut, New York. He sees it all happening. He knows something special is happening amongst him and his small group of friends. He doesn't yeah. know Revelation Records is coming. He doesn't know what Youth of Today is going to become. But he's aware enough to be like, yeah, me and my friends have something pretty special going on because already these bands are starting to make like Youth of Today had already been to Boston twice at that point. I hadn't seen them yet, but they had already sort of are starting to make their impact in 86. I mean, Break Down the Walls comes out in 86. So they, I would imagine they probably had to have been playing shows and blowing yeah. kids' minds for 
a year, a year and a half before that. I guess can't sure. close my eyes. The first seven inches, 85. So, you know, I'm a little late to the game, but the right. game but is a lot of that's New York kids playing in New York and local stuff. Sometimes sure. news travels fast and sometimes it doesn't. So for sure. and that being a Worcester kid of, of the next generation was that we only knew Boston stuff. If we knew a band we knew was coming to Boston and we were going to see them, we didn't necessarily right. know about the Boston Same. bands and the Boston shows. We went, Oh, this band's coming to town. Oh, they're going to play in Boston. So we're going to go to Boston. So Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. We had no internet. She nope. was scary. Nope. <laughs> but the timing there always seemed to be particularly interesting to me that I'm just a, a, at a very, ripe age as things are about to start getting really interesting in the hardcore scene right. and in a sort of subset of the hardcore scene that feels particularly mine that i went and found sort of yeah. on my own that made a lot of sense to me aesthetically i liked the way they looked i liked how energetic they were on stage it just there was something more comfortable to me the idea of wearing sneakers than combat boots for sure and I needed somebody else to tell me that that was going to be okay. Right. And these and, kids from New York. And being a kid that grew up playing sports and, yeah. you know, at least had a passing interest in them. It's like, oh, I can assimilate other parts of my life into this. It's it, it's a little more complete, right? 100%. You know, I loved baseball as a child. And, you know, it was a real love of mine. And when I get into punk, I reject it, you know, some of these punk bands just are telling me fuck sports and I'll, I'll, okay, I can go along with that. But I do remember mid to late eighties, you know, Slapshot comes around, they're embracing, you know, sports and there's almost like the whole jocket aesthetic and me being sort of excited that it seemed like we could get back to that, that I could reincorporate a my very real love for sports. For sure. With, with, with being a punk kid. But to just backtrack that a second too. So sure. you're seeing Crippled Youth where he's introducing you to these three records. So we're talking for people that are not, that may be listening, that may not be into to punk and hardcore. These are foundational elements in the history of hardcore and punk rock that are game changers. Cro-Mags Age of Quarrel was was one of those records that you can point to a, a million bands that that it's had some effect on right and then youth of today really changing the scene i mean if not for nothing else than the aesthetic 100%. like and they did a million other things but just to look at it in terms of the sneakers right like there's no <laughs> it's yeah. huge it's huge for me it's huge absolutely but you're you are correct that those two bands still to this day work now we're 40 years later are, are still, you know, Age of Coral, the Chromax LP would be, you know, in most people's top 10 greatest hardcore releases of all time. You know, it's just, it is canon to what follows, you know, everything that yeah. follows is touched, is filtered through it the same way it is through the bad brands or the same way it is through minor threat for sure. Yeah, I don't realize it at the time. You know, I don't listen to Age of Quarrel and be like, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. It was just unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Right. It was different. You don't know yeah. where it came from, but never heard it a was... guitar sound like that. I'd never read lyrics like that. I'd never looked at a photo of a band that looked so 
representative of what they're singing about you know you looked at those fucking guys and you're just like they come from a different world and then you read those lyrics and they're singing about coming from that world really doing whatever it takes to survive out on the really scary streets of new york city and there's just a realness there that yeah was uh it hit you in a lot of places yes 100 percent. yes so this is a lupo's show right so you're you're able you're you're hitching rides you're becoming part of this worcester scene so i assume you've got more friends more connections you're able to get around a little easier yep by 86 it's 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 i'm figuring it out for sure i got friends that have cars i know where the venues are i'm able to you know like the first time i saw you today was at the rad and i i went alone and it wasn't a big deal it was just i just went took the took the bus to south station i knew the train to get to the rat in kenmore and i knew to come back i literally knew again that i'm gonna have to wait until five in the morning i knew the cafe that was open all night where the guy would let you sit and you know buy one drink and nurse it all night long and just go grab the bus back like that was normal for me at that time but i also definitely have carloads of friends that are going to this gig and that gig and i'm going already like going to cbgb's and i'm going to the anthrax and kid and we're going to albany we're going all over the place yeah and that goes on for years. That goes on three years, maybe, of just just steady, constantly, just going to gigs and yeah. So uh, you have, you haven't done anything other than three weeks of high school in terms of like formal education at this point. None whatsoever. None. I may be getting ahead of myself, but was there ever a a drive to go back to like? No, Do you, there was never a drive. There were conversations with my dad where I would try to appease him because my dad, he ends up moving back to Worcester Okay, in the mid eighties. He, he gets an apartment in Worcester. Um, I don't want to get, have things get too, too convoluted here, but I guess I'll here. Let's we'll wrap up this part so you can just okay. have a clear picture of what happens. So, while I'm running around making my mother crazy, running away from home, getting in trouble with the law, like, you know, like being, I was arrested for trespassing in the mall because I told security to go fuck themselves when they were trying to kick us out. And I was like skateboarding in parking lots where we were, you know, so I'm like getting arrested for minor offenses. My mom is having to come fucking bail me out of jail, you know, tear filled. At this time, she falls in love with a guy named John Clancy who they work at a painting wallpaper and company together. My mom has since she has graduated with her degree to be a physical therapist, but she's working at a job that is a painting wallpaper and company that is owned by very good friends of the family by basically, I mean, it is my godmother. They feel like uncles and aunts to me, you know, they're around for everything. They have a softball league that we all play on. So my mom never pursues this career. She has a job working for friends, doing things with her hands that she really loves. She meets this guy, John. He becomes a huge, I mean, he marries her and he gets her out of Worcester. He takes her to live in Saco, Maine, which is the, you know, the dream my mother always had was to live by the ocean. And they, they buy a house. They buy a little fixer up house in Saco, Maine and move up there and start their own painting and wallpapering business. And they have a garden and it's like the happiest my mom has ever, ever been. These are huge steps for your mom. What is, what is going through your brain as these things are happening? 
dog. It's so, it's so embarrassing to say, but just like all I care about is my friends and all I care about is what I care about. And I, I move in with my dad, like break her heart. Like she is so excited to have me come to Saco and get into a good school system and to just like get the fuck out of Worcester. And I am not having it. And there's no, there wasn't even a discussion. I just moved across town with my dad. Didn't want to have me. My dad didn't have the room for me. His mother was living in the spare room there. They had to turn the living room into a third bedroom because his ailing dying mother has one of the rooms and they give me the other room. And uh, so that's where we're at with that. I'm now living with my dad. My dad tells me, if you get in trouble with the police, do not call me. I'm not coming to get you. I don't even fucking know your name. Right. That puts the fear of God into me. Here comes stop. the responsibility again. Stop really fucking around. Because, you know, I could do whatever I wanted and mom would come get me, take me out of jail. She'd be crying the whole ride home and mad at me. But, like, I knew my dad meant it. My dad would not, you know, if I got arrested for stealing a candy bar and I'm sitting in that stupid holding cell, he's not going to come in that scares me pretty straight to be honest with you and he also tells me if i'm going to live in that house that i need to either go to school or or, or have a job and which you know as a as a human sounds pretty reasonable yeah yeah i'm 16 years old i'm just i'm not contributing in any way he's a little bit better about floating me money i do remember that um, but yeah, he lays the gauntlet down and now I have to start like getting shitty little part-time jobs around and have to just so, sort of do what I got to do. He wasn't going to let me stay there and I'm not quite old enough. It's coming. It's going to happen pretty soon where I go out and live on my own with my friends. But there's, I don't know, about a year there where, yeah, I had to just work shitty, uh, dishwashing jobs and things like that. Okay. It's yeah. I've mentioned this on this podcast with a few different people, but I'm just gonna shoot my stuff. But <laughs> I'm firmly convinced that everyone in the world should have some type of food service job at some point in their lives, just to fucking understand, because it's usually the like can be the the physically dirtiest, the most physically demanding and have the most expectations put on you, not even by your employer, but by the people you're serving or whatever. Like it's yeah. just a, there's a whole thing about food service to me that I think everybody, even if you have only gotten takeout once in your life and every other meal you've ever made your whole life is at home, like you need to know what, what it's like for people. I love that, that it's, it's foundational for people to be able to understand how the world works through right. the food because you see that. people at their absolute fucking worst <laughs> when you're working in a restaurant i feel like whether it's yeah. the employees or whether it's the customers like sometimes both in the same night but for sure for sure that's funny anyway so you're doing dishes you're doing uh, yeah. odd jobs. my first job is at the acapulco Ooh. do you remember it that's not before your time of course, because yeah, it came Tortilla Sam's and I was like, I don't I didn't know if you. Yeah, yeah it's called Acapulco then. And I need money to buy a pair of Jordans, I need to buy a pair of Jordan ones. And I need to buy a Boston Bruins hockey jersey. Both of these things are about one hundred dollars each. 
And the only way to get it is to get this fucking job. And you're a punk kid looking at Jordan ones and a hockey jersey. Yep, exactly. Punk kid from Worcester who is making that transition to only wanting to wear sneakers and big ass fucking collegiate hoodie sweatshirts. Like I know, I know the place where I belong, the place that I am moving towards as a punk kid. And yeah, I needed a job to be able to to fund that. I remember, I remember so clearly suffering through the having to learn how to use the dishwasher. The nachos would be, they were on these gray metal plates. And when they would come out of the dishwasher, they would be so fucking hot, man. They would be fucking yeah. burning your fingers. I remember the cooks laughing at my suffering, but me just thinking about those sneakers, knowing that I'm gonna, if I work two weeks, I'm going to have enough money to be able to buy these sneakers. And it was just, I was, that's what but I thought about. You're soaking wet. It's a sauna. You're burning yourself. People are making demands for plates. They need dishes for this. They need dishes for that. Your shit's it's back. Like you up. were there, dude. It's like you were there. I've been, I've been Straight there. Straight the fuck up. It was misery. I think it may have traumatized me to the point where my response to working a job still to this day is like informed by that very first experience. Like we'll get to it later, but I mean, I hated it. I was absolutely miserable. There was no feeling of like a job well done. It was no. just, you go into this miserable pit, you do what you have to do. You get your check. You look and you know, you're adding up how much you're going to make based on your hourly and then they give you the check and it's not even that amount and you have to have it explained to you that oh well this money goes to this place and yeah. it was There's just taxes and social security and yeah. dog i just fucking hated it so your first check comes though right do you get you can't i'm uh, you can't get both the jordans and the i don't think i could even get the jays on the first check i think i needed two checks dude i think i was probably working the job part-time but yeah, I I think I do. Maybe I got paid every other week. Maybe that's what it was. I can't remember. But I do remember it not being as simple as on Friday I'm going to the mall and I'm getting these Jordans. Mm -hmm. There was a two week period I had to wait for for some reason. But yeah, it literally is the the first thing that I ever buy with my and it can't it couldn't sound more cliche. I do understand how ridiculous it sounds, especially as someone who still <laughs> gravitates towards those sort of sneakers and is very willing to spend my money on something as frivolous as that. But it is the truth. It was the the first thing that I buy for sure are their Jordan ones in 1986. Also, to keep in perspective, when you say to go to the mall, like yeah. we're talking the Worcester Galleria at that yeah. point, yes, which is absolutely. in in the grand scheme of malls, probably the shittiest mall <laughs> to have ever existed, and is one of those things that in Worcester has gone up and been torn down in various ways shapes and forms over the yeah. years but like yeah. the gallery wasn't a cool place to just go and hang out well maybe we didn't know that <laughs> out there a lot we didn't know that i'm looking back on it now i definitely see your point but when i was a kid it was all we had and it was okay you know there was an arcade in there there was a spencer gifts in there there was a couple music stores in there actually don't even know if I, I think I had to buy the Jordans at a place on Main Street down down by the courthouse. I don't think there was a cool sneaker shop. I think the I think the Foot Locker wasn't even in the mall at that time. We had, I mean. Uh, What's your earliest memory of the Galleria? That's so funny that you even know about the Galleria. Well, I mean, 
my and I grew up like Tatnick Square, but it was always my dad worked on Chandler Street downtown. I think when I was when I was really young. So like I mean I was in and out of the area. I used to play basketball at, at Friendly House. Like I think because my dad knew somebody that was like had something to do with Friendly House. So like it wasn't my neighborhood, but like that's where I would whatever was on this team or whatever so yeah like i knew some of that those spots and whatever would be doing stuff with my dad but it was i remember i mean for me growing up the sneaker spot was kangaroo crossing so that probably came Where much later kangaroo crossing was the other end when you're going it's still on main street as you're going towards the courthouse and the unitarian church yeah, sort of across from where the Palladium is, right down there. Yeah, yeah, a little, yeah, a little further down. Yeah, yeah, that spot had like the two or three floors, but it wasn't yeah. always. They didn't always have the two or three floors open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Kangaroo Crossing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where. I think that was. I think that was the sneaker spot for me too. Actually, okay. I think that. I think that probably goes back through the eighties because that's where I. Yeah. That's where I remember getting sneakers or looking at sneakers. Yeah. Was that spot down at that end of Main Street, yep. on the opposite side of the street from the Palladium, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's the spot. That's crazy. Sure. I'm so bad with names. You hear it? You saying Friendly House just sent like a chill through my head. <laughs> like I grew up there. Like that's where where I would go after school. And you know, my mom still had to work, and there was like an after school yeah. program that would bus you straight to Friendly House, and I would play there and play basketball there and go on f- field trips with groups there. Yeah, but if I don't know if it's. Names, I haven't. I been by it in years i don't even know if it's still there i'd assume it is but it was like a community center like yep. kind of thing but in my 20s i live off of that street i live that's water street what street was that's, that that was grafton water. street wasn't it going up no what's that side street i guess not water street but anyway in my 20s i lived off of it and it was still there then for sure but i haven't been back up in that neighborhood in so long would be fun to go back and see if it's still there yeah, that was a big part of my youth friendly house for sure. It's funny you so you were there to play sort of competitive basketball? No. No, I was terrible. Um, but it was I liked basketball and my dad I think liked basketball and so it was one of those right. things that was like oh, uh I did this widely. Oh, I would go to the I I have really early memories of being at the YWCA downtown. Um, right. I so, that. I don't know if that was like if it was like we would go like as a family for something or if i was just in like a daycare or something as a little kid right i don't really remember but anyway too funny anyhow so you're but you finally get jays what is what it comes down to finally understand how it works that you work hard you make money you can buy cool stuff and that's sort of like that the rest of your life is miserable but you know the trade-off never quite makes a ton of sense to me I just didn't I just was not cut out for the the working thing, man. I go from there to working at the cafeteria at Assumption College, working in the in the dishroom, caf the food prep area at Assumption. Which is not close to downtown. So Two if you miss a bus, that's a hike. Two buses. Oh, I never walked. You just had to take buses, but I was late all the time. But I remember very vividly having to take the bus from wherever I lived, whether it was Grafton Hill. Later on, I move in with friends at 17. I move in with friends down on Milbury Street and having to take 
one bus to downtown, take the downtown bus all the way the fuck out there to Assumption. And I work in the dish room mostly. And uh, <laughs> in, it's funny because in the summer, you get laid off there and you can collect unemployment. But we would never, me and my friend, who's the same kid, David, is the same kid that I found when I was 15 on the skateboard who showed me the Sex Pistols. We're working there together and we never make it. We always leave the job a little too soon to start skating because the weather turns and there's so <laughs> many great skate spots at Assumption. So we would always end up leaving the job sometime around May and then they would take us back in September because we, you know, we, we, we knew our way around. They needed kids to come in and do it. So we would never quite be able to collect the unemployment. We'd always get the job back in September, except for the third year they warned us, if you do this again, if you guys leave us high and dry in, in May or April, whenever, we would just start bailing and just start going to skate. You will not be invited back. And we called their bluff and they, they didn't invite us back. That was, <laughs> that was the end of my career at Assumption. But that, you know, what you were just saying is funny because that was the, my experience, seeing how a whole network works, like understanding how to run the dish room, how to keep things organized, getting the food onto the trays, the, onto the, the trays under the conveyor belt, the conveyor belt feeds into the dish room, you clear the plates, you put them into the, into the machine someone receives them they load the card up you bring the clean dishes back out mm -hmm. like it was the first time me seeing how something works and kind of being a part of it yeah. you know understanding like they would have people would get hired from work a day and come into work for the day and i yeah. would be able to explain to them here's what your task is you're going to do this and it started it was the first time in my life where i can see yeah, a big system, you know, kind of click into place and understand if the, if this guy's failing at his job, then it's right. going to affect Yeah, this, this interdependence of pieces. Yeah. yeah, all that. And then right. I moved from the dish room and now they're having me like cut the tomatoes and put them into these things and bring them down and, you know, bring them down and store them down in the cooler. And I'm just sort of like, yeah, seeing how it all works, right. and, you know. But they're small steps, but they're significant in your day to day. Yes. And I even like... I'm just thinking psychologically too, like having the two bus rides now yeah. and you're clicking through like you're coming up Salisbury street or whatever, like there's, you're going through some real nice neighborhoods. So as opposed to going to the Acapulco where you're still kind of in the hub of mm -hmm. Worcester, mm -hmm. as you start to get a little further away from downtown and mm -hmm. the, the sizes of the houses start to change, all these lawns are popping up all these lawns are maintained all of a sudden there's statues in front of somebody's house or something like your brain probably is clicking into something where you're you're prepping for that day at work which you may not have had before too like you're yeah. you're getting in the zone and this is you're getting the tunnel vision of what this is going to be but you're then more open to the things that happen there in a different way yeah yeah it's true i could be talking out it of my ass true. but that's where my brain oh goes. no 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 it makes sense the process of getting to work for the first time was a process and you had to prepare an hour before, you know, like you're, if you have to work seven hours, it's still nine hours of like the hour getting there, the hour getting back or whatever. I do remember, you know, I hated it. It was a fucking pain in the nuts, but I had no other, there was no choice for me. I couldn't not have a job either, either a, when I was living with my dad. And then as soon as I'm starting to make enough money where it feels like me and my friends can all split a big apartment together 
then I need to make rent and bills and just right. like, yeah. So when you don't get to go to Assumption anymore, where do you, where does the money start coming from? My uncle hires me. My uncle Dana hires me to work for his, he was a printer. He ran, ran a print shop down in, on South Main called Henry's Copy Center. Okay. And uh, he's got two printing presses in there and a high-speed copier in the back and does a lot of bindery work and stuff like that. This is also the career that my dad has had his whole life. So I've been around it. I th actually think he taught my mother's youngest brother, Dana, how to do it. Like Dana went to trade school and my dad was a, several years older and kind of took him under his wing. And now, now my uncle Dana kind of has a career. He owns his own shop and uh, he hires me, teaches me to run the presses and to uh, do the bindery and the shipping receiving. It was a small little operation, just he and his wife, they'd bring their dog in to work with them every day. He was the kind of guy that somebody would come in and need, you know, 25 copies made and Dana would, shoot the shit with him for 45 <laughs> minutes he was just like a real community guy wasn't a go-getter wasn't trying to make the most money the fastest but was very well liked and and would give everyone a break he would print all our fanzines for us and print off all of our flyers even before i was working there i knew i could go to dana and he would get us a hundred a hundred flyers easy you know my dad you know as my dad progresses through his career he becomes um he starts working for the fallon clinic he gets his first sort of like suit and tie job they hire him as what they call the graphics coordinator for the entire hospital which is expanding you know the hospital's growing and growing and his yeah. job is to delegate all of the printing needs for all of the different departments everything goes through him and what that means is that he can't do it all in-house so he has to have relationships with all of the different print shops around the city who are all whining and dining him because okay. they want his business so i i was always very aware of like the four or five different print shops around the city that my dad okay. would delegate work to and sometimes i would do that work he would have so much work that needed to be done in such a timely fashion my stepmom and I and him would like go into these print shops after hours and either make pads or make booklets or do stapling or folding or whatever the fuck needed to happen with these forms. And I would get paid like, you know, $10 an hour under the table, which was, you know, astronomical money for me at that time. But yeah, there's a several year period there where my dad is like no longer running a machine. He's now going to meetings and he's now He's he's a boss, but he's still got to he's still got to do the legwork to get yeah, shit done. Yeah, for sure. But for just quick, let me quick touch on the money. So, my first job, I want to say, there was minimum wage was like four dollars an hour or something, and that's got to be early nineties. Yeah. So ten bucks an hour under the table. Early 90s. If we're talking yeah, late eighties, late eighties, yeah. late eighties, yeah. early nineties, like whatever. That's we're talking. That's good for money. sure. For sure. We'll get to that a little. We're, we're getting to that in a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's it's good money for Worcester when you have no education and you have 
minimal sure. experience and your connections are yeah punk rock yeah it's not a 40 hour a week job or anything but there would just be nights where it would just be like we need you know do you want to come in and work tonight we have to get you know all these forms out we would never be doing the physical printing we would be doing whatever needed to happen after the forms had been printed for whatever the department was i remember a lot of having to like collate three pieces of paper together and then one staple in the corner you know so it wasn't the copy machine no, doing all that work. And I'm there. I'm there to see that transition take place. But still, at this point, you're just having to do it by hand. And yeah, that was, if there was any skill that I had in my late teens, that was that was one of them that had sort of started with my uncle taking me under his wing and letting me work in the print shop with him and then kind of transitioning to my dad having a lot of sort of like late night work available so yeah i i don't remember the feeling that the money was good yet but no but you're paying rent but yeah at 17 too, i move out buying your own 17 food i move point, out so but it's... the rent is so cheap i remember like paying four months rent in one shot once to just so i didn't have to think about it anymore just like paying because I, I i didn't even have a bedroom i was like sleeping on a couch in the living room. I think there were five bed, four bedrooms, the living room, and somebody was sleeping in a hallway up front in like a roach infested fucking shithole above a laundromat in the heart of Millbury Street. I can't imagine what the rent was, but it was, you know, very, very cheap. It was not expensive at all. And we only were able to live there for a year before we were evicted, but it was, it was, a, it was a fun year for sure. So how long are you working at the print shop? I can't remember how long it was. Maybe it was a year, maybe a little more than a year. It was a very relaxed job. He uh he loved me to death. You know, I'm his sister's kid. Uh he was a music guy himself, but was yeah. in bands and you know, we could just talk about music endlessly. He wasn't into the sort of thing I was into, but he understood a real passion for music a love for music and i think he saw that in me at that time liked that i was a, a part of a community and doing bands with myself and that we were doing fanzines and trying you know do something progressive but he was not a good disciplinarian he was not trying to make me get to work on time and he didn't give me a hard time if i wanted to leave a couple hours early he was not probably the best thing for me at that time because <laughs> I was a fucking hustler, man. Like, if I could take an inch from you, I would take a mile. You know, like, I was sharp. I was able to see the way to exploit any sort of failures or weaknesses. And, yeah. And he was giving you For that sure. leeway. To a fault. He was giving you To a fault. Like, get, like, would pay me on okay. Monday for the whole week's worth of work. And just, he was just too good. And still to this day is too good and is very poor because of it but is well-loved and has lived, you know, a beautiful life of caring about other people and, you know, not just being one of those cutthroat mercenary type motherfuckers that only are worried about the bottom line. I think maybe I got a lot of, of that from him now that I sort of think about it because that stuff just doesn't matter to him. You know, he does just enough to get by, but he wants to be happy and he wants to be a good person and he's warm to everyone and he's loving. And he would, you know, if I was ever in a jam, he is on the list of people that I could call at four in the morning or that I could go, you know, sleep on their couch for six months and know that it would be fine. Yeah. He's great. He lives up in, uh, 
up in Tatnik too. I'll flip there. Awesome. Still a good yeah, area. Pretty good. We went when uh, when my wife and I were looking for our first house. It was we were looking because I grew up mm. that area and I was psyched. I was like, oh, this stuff in Tatnik. Let's yeah. go to Tatnik. This is I know Bushel and Peck, like, you know, all sure. this. But um it was even at that point, you know, 10, 15 years ago, just the, the traffic in that area has gotten so it? insane. It takes you like to drive, it'll take you at rush hour, it'll take you easy a half hour to get from downtown to like no Tet Square. Yeah, that's gross. That's crazy. <laughs> no wonder that airport doesn't even <laughs> that's a whole yeah. other animal. Anyway, so we're uh, you're working for your uncle at the print shop. At what point do you get in your first band? Well, that had already happened. That happened at like 15. Like as soon as I'm doing okay. this stuff where we're kind of booking our own shows and we have our own little clique of friends who are sort of separate from the older punk kids, we all just start making our own bands. Like there's like three or four bands. Yeah, four of us really. Just everyone just kind of pairs off and people start figuring out if they're going to play bass or they're going to play guitar and some people play in their friends bands but yeah there was kimberly not she she was in a band called the clock that she sang in and then one of the other kids he started a band called living color that would later become patience because there was already a band named living color that we found out and uh there was a band called equal vision no not equal vision equal reaction that would later become villain and then i was in a band called aggressive hate was like at 15 and then but 16 we change our name to raging hope because now i'm like in love with youth today and the youth crew and stuff like that but we all have bands from 50 i mean that's a pretty that's literally the exactly. other side of the coin aggressive right? hate to raging hope <laughs> exactly and that's yeah 15 16 i guess by 17 now i'm starting to make friends with people sort of outside of worcester some clinton kids who uh we started a band called backbone together in the more late era of the 80s, I guess maybe Backbone doesn't happen until 88. Raging Hope is 87. But it's all sort of a blur. But yeah, I'm in bands all through that time, but none of them are doing anything other than playing local shows, maybe getting lucky. I saw a flyer the other day of Raging Hope on a on a show at the Blue Pelican, which is like in Newport, Rhode Island, I think. I think it was in okay. and we're playing with like uppercut and raw deal in 87 and i was like oh i don't i don't really remember that i don't remember the difference between having played the show or going to the show but that was my band i yeah. sang in raging hope so i think there were some the rare outside of worcester shows we played aggressive hate my first band played with gangrene at the rocket in providence rhode island where i like had to borrow the van from the painting and wallpaper and company that my mom worked for like the owners like i was saying or like the owners like my godmother very close friends of the family and like going to them yeah but making a pitch to you looking at your history i would not be letting you take the van homie that's <laughs> just saying. It's so funny to say yeah they let us take the van we went down and played the gig but yeah so i'm in bands all through that but they're not 
they didn't like define me the way a band is going to later you know i don't know if it be, if that is has says something about the success Bane founder that i'm in i was at a certain age at that point but at this time it's just something that i do that almost feels almost like sort of the same as skateboarding you know it's like the way yeah but there's to give to give listeners a kind of an idea too if they're not familiar right you get a show with gangrene with your little town yeah. band that's that's a big deal in massachusetts right because i mean the like foundational from my outside perspective foundational like punk scene bands were like jerry's kids sure. and gangrene like so if you're getting to play with them probably towards the end of their era mm -hmm. yeah, they're not cool already at this point. cut their teeth yeah they're like okay. really into alcohol and really just sort of like they're not like fast and hard okay. the way they were in those early records but it's still so they're dwindling and you're hoping to up and come. Yeah, i don't even i don't even remember what i was hoping i don't remember a lot of feelings of like what do i hope i can accomplish with this band what's the next step it wasn't a goal-oriented thing it was something that you just did it was like another way to be a part of the scene almost i wasn't good at it i don't remember i don't remember talks about how do you make this song good or what should the next song i just sort of just like went along and they told me this is the song and you sing the lyrics and that's just what i did there was no real effort into the writing of the lyrics any and none of that stuff i don't remember sitting and taking it particularly seriously is there any interest starting on instruments at this point no no uh-uh no? no not through the 80s not yet no it's, it's like almost embarrassing when i look back at how little that stuff shined through for me. Like, I don't even know if I could have told you, maybe even in the early Backbone days, maybe by the early Backbone days, I know. I know. But in the mid-80s, I couldn't have told you that a guitar had six strings and their bass had four. I couldn't have told you that. I couldn't have told you what a high E was. I don't know if I could have told you the difference between a ride cymbal and a hi-hat cymbal. Like, I just didn't really understand how any of it worked. And I wasn't all that interested I was really interested. In so even in terms of songwriting in early bands, like you're not a part of it. You're just I don't really quite understand how it works. I almost am just like okay. very good at imitating what I've seen the bands that I love. I'm just sort of just sort of like doing what I've seen them do and trying to like rage around the stage the way they do and jump high and give maybe some yeah. speeches between songs. Later on, that stuff starts to happen, but. I'm just kind of emulating it at all. I'm so in love with it that I can just kind of like do it. And I feel like I remember the same thing with Little League, you know, like you'd get up to bat and the way you would handle the bat yeah. and the way you would stand would just be doing it because what you saw the guys who you love do it, you know, and that's, and being in a band in those early days felt very much sort of like that. Like, I, well, I, I know how to do this just because I watch it all the time. And I had some amount of, confidence in me to be able to get up there and do it but i remember like my mom came and saw raging hope play we played at wcuw which was a radio station in in worcester and they had like a front little room where, where we could have small shows and she came and afterwards she, was she still living in worcester she's in maine. Was she, she in comes maine down to, okay. to see me play she's in maine she comes like with my godmother sally and like i'll, I'll 
some of her friends and they're whooping and they're drunk and they're having so much fun in the back of the room. But afterwards we go out to dinner and she's so impressed. She's like, wants to talk to me about how I could have gotten up there. And how did you do that? Like she was so impressed. And to me, it just seemed like, it didn't seem like a thing that you do at all. You just do it. It didn't like, there wasn't any effort involved whatsoever. I just like, I couldn't even, there, there wasn't an answer. Hadn't dawned on me that that could be a difficult thing or that some people would find it particularly hard to put a mic in their hand and to get up there and sort of be the centerpiece in a, in a punk band. But to me, it just was like, it's just always just, I don't know. It was taught to me very early that this wasn't a big deal, that anybody can do this. Yeah. You don't have to be talented. Like I, you know, I heard bands who were not particularly talented, but that still moved me very, very deeply. And I just knew that it just was about passion and about, yeah, expression. And that was the, the beauty of punk rock is you didn't have to know how to do it. You just had to. Was this your mom's like first experience? It was the only time that? she ever saw me play in, in a band. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure it was the, the only memory that I have. And I remember how proud she was and impressed. She dies in the early 90s before Bane starts. But it is a constant sadness in me being able to remember how excited she was about Raging Hope playing in front of 40 people at WCW and how she would have gone along for the ride with Bane and sort of been absolutely blown away at what the band was able to do and what it meant to people and the shows that we played and the places that it brought us. I mean, she would have been ecstatic for me to see where I got to get to because of because of music you know it always seemed a, a real sort of crime that she didn't get to see that because she would have i think she would have wore a band shirt every day of her life type of thing you know what i mean <laughs> but yeah I, that was i believe the only time the only i don't think she I think by the time i'm in backbone 17 18 i'm probably a little more defiant about i'm just keeping these things separate and i am also starting to take it a little bit more seriously at that point once backbone the third yeah. band starts we're starting to understand what it means to want to sound like something, what it means to want to sound good. I'm now at a point in my life where I'm reading more. So lyrics are starting to be kind of affected by, you know, being impressed by other writers, things like that. What are you reading? It starts with Rollins and then Rollins is sick, man. He just like leads you to Bukowski and to Henry Miller and to Hubert Selby Jr very quickly you know you start you read those early Rollins books and you start looking at what other things that are on the the publisher that he's putting out and very quickly you're reading some fucking cool authors and then you read Bukowski and Bukowski's talking about Dostoevsky and Satra and Hemingway and like I mean yeah I'm, I'm saying that. and but some pretty dark shit in for between sure. I mean, for There's... sure, those were my, you know, those guys were all huge for me is reading, you know, the more darker, the more serious stuff. I remember being maybe, I guess, 18, 19 at this point in passing on like times with my friends, whether it was skateboarding or whatever the fuck they're going to do to be in a corner of the library downtown and just like crushing books, just like really, really in love with reading, which... I had when I was younger too. When you know, my mom was a big, a big reader. Would 
push books on you. And I remember like before going to Virginia, already being really into reading the Essie Hinton stuff, the outsiders and Rumblefish and things like that. Yeah. So, but that I really get bit by the bug late teens or early twenties where it goes from Rollins to Bukowski, who was like, you know, the greatest in my mind, I'd never read anything like that before. And then checking out things that he would talk about in his writings and reading a lot of the like existentialist, reading Camus, a stranger, reading a ton of Hemingway, and really being in love with that. See, so your brain then is expanding through those pages. Like you're you're hearing about these experiences of others. You're getting touched on by all these people for sure outside of your limitations of Worcester, mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, I look at it as the only education I ever really had is those books. It's like, that's how I learned how life works is through those books, for sure. At what point does your life start to feel like you're using lessons from those books? Or is it just lyrically at that point where you're trying to process? No, I don't even know. I mean, I'm still, you know, late teens, early 20s. I I don't know how much I bring the... I guess there was to some degree if if I really do think about some of the backbone lyrics there is some feeling of the the guys who I was writing who I'm sorry who I was reading then informing the way that we were attacking the lyrics the drummer and myself Dave Green who was at that time my best friend in the world he goes on to drum in that band Cast Iron Hike Worcester band he uh he was the drummer to backbone and he's also really intelligent, really into reading, really into film. And there were a lot of conversations about the lyrics that he and I would have that did make the the lyrics a little bit darker. This is also at a time now where hard, hardcore is getting a little darker. Bands like Raw Deal and Killing Time and Sick of It All are no aren't just singing about being positive in the in the love by the community and they're right. starting to deal with a little bit more hard reality based subjects that are sort of in line with what with what I'm living through as well particularly with reading a ton of Bukowski and starting to see the world as kind of a farcical untrustworthy place that will disappoint you and really embracing those ideas and they do start to seep their way into the lyrics for sure yeah but there's right i mean there is obviously like especially in small music scenes one of those little droplet changes right there's that ripple effect it's like oh we can do that we don't have to just do this rote abc line we can draw a piece of this i can take a little piece of this right so i mean uh, the music scene for sure the hardcore scene embodied that as we talk about you know some bands getting more that the emo side the metal influences mm-hmm. coming in all that piece but but at some point you get interested in drums is that hanging out with dave well i guess a little towards that no. you know in backbone i start to understand that i have a little bit of an innate rhythm in me like i have just like they're just built into me i just kind of understand how rhythm works and starts, you know, at the end of practices, start goofing around on the drums and they would play a cover or whatever. And I would be able to, to 
to keep up you know i wasn't a very good drummer but i understood how it worked and they were they were fun you get to beat on them and yeah they were fun but certainly was not something that i was imagining was going to become a part of my life and then i start hanging out with a different crew of kids in worcester like uh crew of kids who are kind of like from the route 20 area down grafton street almost towards where the you jump onto the highway down there way down there on grafton and uh yeah i make a new crew of friends and they were really sort of interesting and fun they, they were really into playing basketball they were really into playing card games role-playing games and board games and they had much more open-minded taste in music than the backbone and the sort of hardcore dudes that i'd been around for the last few years and they have their own little band their own little sort of like rock band and there's a pair of drums there's a set of drums in this kid chris's basement that i would be able to drum on and yeah suddenly i'm like jamming with those guys playing not hardcore music at all doing real sort of I mean, post-hardcore wasn't a thing yet, but it was, you know, the these were kids who still came from the punk scene, but were also very into classic rock and very into what's going on now. Big, you know, fans of bands like Fugazi and Pitchfork, who later went on to become Drive Like Jehu. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of getting a new musical education and I'm jamming with them on that drum kit down there. We're doing like, hey joe covers and just you know doing whatever and i i could do it and they were like you know we should do this we should make this band backbone ends right around that same time we have what is it called interior differences on the direction we want to go in creatively <laughs> they're becoming very more into metal and bands like prong and you know the real technical end of things which i just wasn't into at all i was really a, sort of a purist when it came to hardcore and this band also existed in clinton it was kind of a pain in the ass for us to get for me to get out there and we're all kind of like getting in our 20s and moving in our own directions and i found a different this crew of kids in worcester this this route 20 group of kids that i really loved being around we had a ton in common we had a lot of fun together and i start drumming with them yeah i start drumming in this in this band with these dudes where i'm not having to like write lyrics i'm not having to really have any say in the way the music sounds I'm just sort of happy to be just kind of like creating with them. And yeah, that's awesome. What are you doing to pay rent at this point? Uh, this would be after I left. What am I doing to pay rent at this point? I'm assuming you're past the, the print shop at this point. Okay. You know, I got it now. Here's what I did. <laughs> Here's what I did. Okay. I remember. Here's what I did. <laughs> I, so I decide I, I decide I want to, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to become, I'm going to work with kids. I want to work with, I want to work with children. I. So this sounds like very out of the blue, very sort of. So I spent, so, yeah. Okay. I got it now. So I spend the year living with my friends. That apartment closes up. I have to go back to, to my dad's. Now my dad's mom has since okay. died. So the apartment has kind of opened up a little bit. He has his room back, but he's turned the second room into his exercise room. I remember so clearly like going there to have the talk. I need to come back and live at home. 
and looking in what used to be my bedroom now there's like weights and a bench press and there's on the wall <laughs> and he's like okay i'll have to take that your dad's wearing a tie now like you know I he's know. moving he up really is. so they let me come back and live there and at that time i'm pretty sure from pressure from him like he's now seen me move out come home again which i think is a rite of passage for most kids right you make an attempt you come home yes but he's yep. trying to get me to fucking get it together and somewhere along the line i decide okay i'm going to get my ged i'm going to go start to take some classes to learn how to i mean it really was <laughs> as just sort of like abstract as i want to work with kids I, you know, there's something about the innocence there that yeah. I want to be around. It didn't go exactly. any deeper. Exactly. It was just, that was it. Okay. And I'm dating a girl at the time who works at a nursery school, works at a very small Jewish nursery school that is attached to Worcester State University that is being run out of a basement of a, of a building attached to Worcester State and she says that she can get me a job volunteering there if I want to kind of get my feet onto the ground there. You put in the and door, yeah. The the door. Exactly. Little, so I yeah. take this job. The first year I'm doing it strictly volunteer. And the money that I'm making is mostly from doing the the evening hustles with my dad, the binding, the the printing stuff. But he's fine with me not making a ton of money living there because I'm like pursuing I'm working for yeah. a nursery school. Yeah. You're taking steps. Yeah. And uh, it's tiny, man. There's like 10 kids. There's two teachers there. I don't understand it at all. I mean, I'm not Jewish at all. The kids are coming in, they're doing prayer. They're, they're having their snacks and then they, you know, they're three and four year old kids. And then we read to them and then we play with them. And then it's nap time. And then they have another snack. And then the parents come and pick them up. Somehow I'm just like fully invested in this. And there's one little boy there. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's this, what's this feel like for you? Like, what is your, what's your mental state at when this is, you're doing this job? Like, is this just chill and you're feeling good? Or are you stressing about things? Like, is this feeling like a, a road a fun you want thing to go to on? Try to remember what I was feeling there. It felt like, you know, I'm at that time, I'm 20, 21, maybe. Have a very serious girlfriend. Uh, maybe the first really serious girlfriend of my life. And uh, yeah, I feel like I'm going to have a career, I guess. I don't really. Yeah, I just kind of I'm I'm more being swept along than feeling like I'm leading the cart and really understand this, but I'm just sort of like mm -hmm. trying to be in my 20s. I'm trying to Are you comfortable in it? Like does no, it feel I don't think I can claim that. I don't think okay. I can claim that like Nah, I don't think I'm super comfortable. I'm trying. I'm doing what I I want I I want to make my dad proud. I want to prove that I can do this. And now the two, the woman who runs this after school, this nursery, she's a very, very nice lady who really takes a keen, keen interest in me and wants to sort of guide me into it, even though I'm not Jewish at all. Somehow 
she sees some, I almost want to feel like broken bird syndrome in me that she is a very good, warm person and takes it upon herself to try to guide me and to help me to see if I really do want to be a nursery school teacher. So the first year I volunteer in the, of the, of the children who are there, there's one boy, his name was Benjamin, and he has a really, really hard time leaving his mom. His mom has a lot of health issues. I think she might've been suffering with cancer. Now that I think about it, it wasn't spelled out to me at that time, but I do remember her constantly wearing a headdress, you know, constantly covering her head. But my relationship is with Benjamin in that he would be so upset every day that he would be disruptive to the whole class and would have to be taken to the side. And I would want to take him to the side to try to calm him down. And I find out that Benjamin likes baseball and if we can talk about baseball, it will calm him down. So now I'm bringing him baseball cards or we're looking at, you know, I'm just finding a way to connect with this boy. And then this becomes sort of like a thing that I do that now his parents are really excited about me and like, yeah, thanking me and pulling me aside and telling me how much Ben I mean to Benjamin. And this is all new for me. This is just like, I've never been exceptional at anything is fight or flight kicking in in your brain now? Like, no. oh my God, is it, am I getting attached no. by a kid? Do no, I need it's to... more of a feeling of like, I mean, I guess I could even reference like having aced that test that I studied for in Virginia, just like okay. being good at something and it, and it, it feels really nice. You know, it feels good to be cool. told like, very cool. To, I, I felt like I was integral that Benjamin would show up. His mother would have to leave him. He would be in hysterics. I would pull him aside. And we would sit and we would connect and we would find the things he likes to play with. And we would talk about baseball. And at the end of that year, she like gave me a gift and wrote me a wonderful card. The sad twist of the story is they're moving. So I only have this one year with Benjamin and then they move away. I don't remember where they went, but I just really remember a feeling of accomplishment there of like having meant something to that boy, having meant something to yeah. his parents, having meant something to the people who run the nursery school and really telling me how exceptional all of that was for me it was very easy it was just connecting with a kid you know it wasn't hard but it was right it was made to feel like what i had done was pretty special so the next when you're in the mind of a, a three or a four-year-old like those little interactions that make them happy like that's their whole world you know it could be one good hour of a day where they're engaged in doing something and that's what they're whole focus is on they might not see the other it was crazy hours, it was know? crazy being told like oh he talks about you over dinner he tells you you know he, he, like aaron is a name around the house now and i just i'd never had that experience my whole life you know it just hadn't been a thing for me and it was it was a nice feeling for sure it's awesome so they bring me back the next year now they hire me and now they're expanding they're doing two classes instead of one they're doing like a nine till noon and then they're doing a one to four or whatever the fuck so it could be a little bit more of a part-time job. They can pay me a little bit of money, not a lot of money, but a little bit. But with it comes much more responsibility. So the second year, now Benjamin's gone. The second year is more about seeing what it really means to run a nursery school, where it's not really about <laughs> talking about baseball and playing outside. It's about yeah. having to make, um, what is it called? The, the, you know, having to come up with things for the kids to do. I can't. Yeah. Activities, yeah. Lesson, lesson plans. Exactly. Like, yeah. That, she starts that to throw stuff, all yeah. of this then, stuff on me. She wants, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. You know, 
now it's real work. Yeah, now, now I it's have to a take job. it home and I got to think about it. And I don't like it at all. And there's also just a lot of, there's way more me having to interact with the parents, tell the parents what this kid did was wrong, tell the parents this kid's jacket is torn and they need a new jacket and just like a lot of things and really starting to see the politics of just like backbiting little adults talking about each other behind their backs. I'm like, I'm taken off the floor and now I'm seeing how adults really work and exist and it's ugly and it's gross and people are mean and people are petty and I'm spending not a lot of time with the kids. It's not, it's really just not about being with the kids anymore. And I don't, I don't think there's anyone who just gets to have a job where they just get to crawl around playing with kids. No. Well, yeah, it's babysitting essentially. But there is like, it is like the facade is gone. gone. The illusion is melted gone. away now. I'm not into it at all. Even though she has helped me to get my Karen, the woman who ran the program, helped me get my GED and got me into child psychology courses at Becker. Right? Becker's the one that's off Highland Street. Is that Becker? I only go for Yeah. Yep. Yep. So yep, I'm actually yeah. like in college yeah. taking two college courses. My dad is thrilled because it now erases the high school dropout thing. And anytime I need to fill out a job application, they're only going to look at, you know, the, my most recent education. They're not going to see that I went to South High School right. for three weeks. He's thrilled over that. But I'm not learning anything. I'm just like, I'm not cut out for this. Even with like, even with the Bukowski stuff, the child psychology has doesn't none, hold any interest for you? None of it. I don't remember anything from those courses. I remember having notebooks filled with notes, looking at it later and being like, I don't, I don't remember any of this. I don't understand anything. I'm not plugged into it at all. I'm again, really into doing the band with my friends and hanging out with this new crew of friends that I have. Like I said, I had a serious girlfriend at the time. And uh, my dad has more and more of that under the table work to the point where there's now a print shop in Worcester on green street, Minuteman press that I can go to pretty much any time. And there's work for me to be done there. $10 an hour under the table work. I can show up there if I want, at six o'clock before they close and there'd be work for me to be able to do in there till nine or 10 o'clock. And then I know how to set the alarm and lock the door. And the money is just so, I think I'm making like three, maybe $4 an hour over the table at the nursery school. And Mm -hmm. there's just more and more of this $10 an hour under the table work. And then he tells me the guy who runs Minuteman press tells me that he'll hire me 40 hours a week to work for him and i think it was going to be like 11 dollars an hour under the table and it's closer to where i live and it's just like everything about it yeah. made more sense so i stop i don't even finish out my full year at the nursery school my my full paid year i leave which what i think was fine with them i wasn't doing anything that was integral at the nursery well what does that look like with your girlfriend if she's Helped get you. No, in that's there. a really good question. I, we might not have even. I don't think it was too big of a deal. Are you done at that point? Yeah, I don't remember. Her name was Kimberly, and she wasn't. I don't think she was the t- sort of person that would be too upset. I did my time. I did it almost two years. Gave it a real shot, and the more I saw what it meant to be working in in a place that that was that sort of like 
intimate and that sort of very, very money-driven. These were all very wealthy Jewish families. Just like, you know, I was like, my clothes were dirty, you know? I was like barely, I was not a part of that world. I wasn't going to be a part of that world. And I had pretty, I had learned like, this is it's even about it's, this isn't about the kids, and there's not going to be a new Benjamin coming through the door every year for me to be able to thrive and make a real connection with. Like, I'm not doing any, I'm not doing any good here. I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to make fucking lesson plans. I'm not trying to have these conversations about what gossiping about the parents and just like, yeah, this isn't this isn't dude, where you're I'm taking your life at all. This is not. This is not the road where no, I'll down. fucking do printing and binding and shipping receiving for ten, eleven dollars an hour. And just yeah. I I have my first full time job, 40 hours where like if I'm late, I need to be accountable for that. And you know, I don't have mm-hmm. any of the freedoms that I've had in previous jobs. And it's more money than I it's enough money to be able to get my own apartment again to leave living with my dad and I work at that job for 10 years, nine years, just all through the nineties. I just work at Minuteman press. There's a lot of funny stories. Like there's a story of very early on. It was a small print shop. Me, there's a woman who kind of worked the front counter and handled the phones and dealt with a lot of other stuff. She's great. Bill Feinberg, the guy who owns it. And then two, two guys running the printing presses and Kathy, the woman who kind of ran the front counter, she's always trying to get what a real print shop should have. I remember this is early 90s. She has okay. she is hounding Bill for us to get a 401k plan. I don't know what any of this means, but she's like, this is what you're supposed to have. She's, you know, she wants us to have insurance. She wants to make sure we have paid time off. She is like adamant about making sure right. things are run the way. This is this is going to be a legitimate business. This is going to be taxes are going to be paid. He he is just fly by the seat of his pants. He's a young. His father was one of the founders of Zare. Remember Zares? He's like yeah. they're filthy fucking rich. So he's got his own little print shop now in Worcester. He's a go getter, hustler. I don't know how well trained for the task he was. I'm not sure what led him there. But he's got a real killer instinct to him. I'm sure it was just bred into him by his father. But Kathy wants to make sure that everything that we are entitled to, we get. She makes sure every year there's a Christmas party. And and I remember her like telling the boss, Bill, you have to pay for everything. You have to allow, you know, like she. So anyway, (laughs) this is all leading to very early on in my working there. A guy comes in and gives us the rundown on the 401k plan. And that you pay in and Bill's going to match it for 100%. And the guy is trying to impart to us how big of a deal this is. That the 100% matching is a huge deal. And you keep... Because retirement's in your brain at this point. keeping in <laughs> on <right>. me <laughs> as like, this is going to benefit you more than anyone else. Like, you are young. You can afford to put a real chunk. And I'm like, this month, I mean, I couldn't have any. <laughs> I'm not giving a cent. I remember my dad being like... Give 20 bucks, 25 bucks, what does it matter? I'm not giving them a fucking cent. I already see what the government takes. You know what I'm saying? I'm but are you I'm I'm picturing like the Bedard, I'm gonna mess with this guy a little bit and like letting him build up to it just to be like I mean, no. I, 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 I don't even I I didn't have the guts to tell him no that day. 
I'm, I have to like make the decision and I just like, I, I never have to see him again. And you know, the people at the print shop, they don't care, but like this guy, he really cared because he saw, and I, now that I understand how it works, it's so funny to think of yeah. how much money I could have in yeah. a fund if I had like paid at that job. Right. <laughs> but at that time, 21, 22 years old, I just was like, I'm not giving you a cent of my money. I need every cent. Right, because that's your mindset, right? Is I'm giving you, not I'm putting this away. And my boss is matching it. My boss me. is matching it 100 percent yeah. I just didn't understand. I just Which, it, to me it seemed yeah. the same as seeing what the state and federal would take out of your check. It just seemed like, what are you talking about? I'm not giving anything to get it back later. And I still kind of live very much by that sort of way of thinking i'm not a buy-in it's gotten you this far right it's whatever but so like at least in terms of so over the period that you're there let me be selfish now and think about like this is the time that like my version of hardcore is coming back into your life and you're hanging out with the kids that i know or grow to know at some point right did chachi ever work there or was he just at kinko's he was just at kinko's Admit it, man. All right. Okay. For some reason, I thought felt like early on you two might have worked together or something. So that, I'm sure that's yeah. in my imagination. That's so funny to think that he was working for in printing in printing places. That's right. That's right. But yeah, I'm there for a long time. That's just like the job that I have, and now the you know I can't go back to my dad's again i'm never going to be able i'm never going to be able to drag myself through that it was so hard the first time seeing him have to close up that exercise room that there is a there is a feeling that i have to have a job to survive and need to do mm-hmm. whatever it takes to keep this job just a pretty good job you know all things considered it was a pretty pretty chill job and yeah you got like raises every year and had paid time off and got a lot of the things that i had never experience before that it was my first real experience so life was comfortable for you yeah i had my own apartment i lived alone and uh yeah i went from having you know that crew of friends the kids up on off 20 and then uh, yeah at some point Dalbeck calls me me. exactly (laughs) that's exactly right 1995 midway through this sort of like 10-year arc of working at the print shop Dahlbeck calls me and then I I move on and make a new group of friends, right? That's when you come into my life. Exactly. So though, yeah, I'm just like thinking about us having this chat. Like I was getting like the little bits of memories and even like the assimilated memories that I wasn't there for. But I have this vivid <laughs> memory of one of those John Street parties. And I don't know. I was with probably Mikey and like a couple of those kids. I feel like maybe we made like a store two four run or something. And like, we come back and Blair is like, Dart just kicked three girls out of here and he doesn't even fucking live here. Like, it was like this thing. Like I just remember like, you know, it was always the chocolate video was always yeah. on kind of yeah. thing. And like those things, those, those parties and like hardcore kids hanging out and, me feeling like I was the new kid and like being with the cool kids in that building and yeah. stuff. And then Blair being like, but Dar just kicked these three girls out of here. 
you just didn't even live here. And it'd be like this like epic story thing because you were still this figure, I think, to me. I was unhinged but, back then. Completely unhinged. <laughs> to give a little bit of perspective, like, so stay very much immersed in the hardcore scene all through the 80s into the early 90s. Early 90s, when I start hanging out with this new crew of kids, I sort of unplug slowly from hardcore and get to a point where I'm not really, don't know what's going on at all anymore. My favorite bands had all, were, were gone or they had changed mm -hmm. and there was a lot of like weird Krishna stuff going on in the hardcore scene in the early 90s. There was a lot of very militant, vegan, straight edge, very sort of just like angry stuff that didn't have anything to do with the community that I knew. So I sort of unplug and really am only focused on indie rock, post-hardcore quicksand or my favorite band in the whole world. Super chunk becomes a big band to me. I'm, you know, kind of exploring other avenues of music to the point where I don't really know what's going on. I don't know any of the bands. If I'm at a place where like I can maybe flip through a fanzine, I still like to do it. I still love the bands that had meant something to me through the eighties, but there's a lot going on that I am completely disconnected from and thinking this is going to be the rest of my life, thinking that I'm now moving on and starting. I'm still straight edge, but I'm hanging out more and more with people who do drink and who go to bars and just like starting to have those youthful ethics tested a little bit. Um, And there's a... Yeah, it's a different yeah, there's scene. a four-year period sure. there where I'm completely just like unplugged from it. So when in the mid-90s, when Dahlbeck does make that call and Bane starts and I make this new crew of friends, I'm a little bit older than them. You know, you guys, fucking teenagers, you know, I'm 24 years old. Yeah. And I do come sort of raring back into the scene with a feeling of like real cockiness and real like get behind yeah. Like you all don't me, know. Boys. Let me show you. I remember yeah. like being willing to fight bouncers at the espresso bar who would be like mean to Jeremy <laughs> and Steve. And I would hear stories. Oh, this fucking guy, he fucking throws us out. And me being just like thinking I can show them how safe they are in, in my presence. Cause like, I'm not afraid of anyone and blah, blah, blah. But in those years I was on fucking hinged, man. Just, but to, I mean, perspective on that too right the espresso bar was like somebody's mom set up a safe yeah. place for kids to have shows in worcester like what the reality of it is it was not this big evil place it was for me that was the first place i went to a show and that was always my what i don't not mecca but like before sure. the space like that was home for shows that was you felt comfortable there you knew most of the people in the room like I, I did a interview with Erica on here and that was one of the things we talked about was like how kind of safe and wholesome our Worcester scene was in the nineties. Like it was, yeah, it was I love fantastic. It. You know, there's always, there's always one or two incidents sure. or something, you know, some people don't get along, but no, you know, I get thrown under the wing of the fucking Zach Jordans and the Steve Neils and the Michael Bishaws. <laughs> and those are just the bad kids. And so they're the ones who are, if there's anyone even making waves, it's them. And I have just have this like anti-authority still very much baked in me and just want to prove to these kids. Like, I just remember there being a feeling where I wanted to show them that like they were safe with me or that I would go 
I would fight any battle that needed to be fought with them because it was very much my sort of like experience of being a punk and a hardcore kid is you're part of a community. It's like you're a family, you know? And my impression of those kids too, the Barrett kids at that point, probably yeah, the realm kids, exactly. maybe even still at that point, but you know, they were always, they were, utter fight too. <laughs> they were they were the craziest people that I'd yeah. ever been around. Lots of guacamole thrown like, at Denny's. I thought my friends in the eighties were crazy. And then I started hanging around with these kids and it was just, and I was in love with them. You know, I just loved how free and wild they were for sure. But free and wild and so ungodly loyal yes. to one another. Their crew was so yeah. tight. Like it felt like just being alongside those kids in the early days was like, you were you were part of something yes more that's so well put absolutely right i remember feeling um yeah just blown away at being able to to be around it as often as as, as i was and being sort of yeah i just like had found yet another group of friends it's funny i was thinking about this yesterday sorry this, this interview is going to go long but i was thinking this, i'll tell you another story we'll, we'll do a couple when of my uh it'll be fine when my mom moves to Maine, I don't, I don't help her move. Like there's a whole big day where we're supposed to do the move, pack a bunch of cars and the whole family's going to go up there, you, move into Maine, move her into the house. And there's going to be like a weekend, like the, the uncles, my grandparents, everyone is going to, you know, do this thing where we go up to Saco, move them in, stay, have a great weekend. I pack the car in Worcester and then leave then skateboard away like don't go and then there's a two-year period where my mom and I don't talk she's very stubborn I'm very stubborn I really broke her heart with that maneuver I'm not able to accept how shitty that was for me to do so there's a couple of years that go by where we're just not in touch at all she's in Maine I'm living with my dad doing the hardcore thing and we don't are you talking to your brother no at this point I mean, no, I, that, I, that's no, part of just, your mom. Yeah, no. I run into my grandfather, her father at Spags. I'm in Spags and Dewsbury one day. <laughs> and he pulls me aside and he tells me, tells me, I know that you think your friends right now are the most important thing in the world. And I get that. But your friends are going to change over and over and over again throughout your life. And your mother's never going to change. She's always going, your family will always be your family. You need to call your mother. She has two rounds of birthday presents for you sitting on a table up there. Two rounds of Christmas presents. She's waiting for you. You have to call your mother. And when he said that to me, he was right. Heard That's a lot of story. guilt. That's a lot of guilt. I have groups, my, my groups of friends keep changing. You know, the kids that I started booking, going to shows with, making my first bands, then the Backbone kids, then the kids up off of Route 20. But the interesting thing that I thought about yesterday was like, then the Zach Jordans and the Mike Bishaws come around, and those are still my fucking best friends. That's it. Yeah, I really that was did the like end. find the... <laughs> the crew that would just stay my absolute group of friends. Anyway, just kind of funny to be thinking about. You know, with Bane getting back, there's been a lot of nostalgia, a lot of thinking about like our whole trajectory, and just being like, man, oh man, I did find this one crew of friends that just we just have stayed friends for. So, so many years. Right. But those are, those are kids that would 
kids because we're all yeah. 40s now at least they're all kids that you know would would take a bullet for you there and they're kids that i mean going to that silent drive show right and seeing yeah. Bijaw, the hug he gave me at the end i'm gonna tear up a little bit but it was one of those where it was like you know just a, a little conversation and and the feeling that we all meant so much to one another in whatever little piece that that was that we're all still have that connection and that it's it's still important now no matter how mm -hmm. much time goes by mm -hmm. you know, it's, no i think it's big it's one of the things that i loved about that particular community is that we sort of by default over romanticize things all out of portion and oh, yeah. it still echoes to to this day the idea of what we were doing and our relationship to each other being something really really special you know but i mean you want to make that you want to make that outsiders like reference this is sometimes that's what it was right sometimes life around you in some way shape or form is coming apart and this is the it's coming apart for them too and you can depend on one another and that's that was huge yeah for sure it, is. it was huge it's a big part of the uh you know the mortar that holds the bricks of the early bane the whole idea of us together was it came from the feeling that was born through our friendships there you know really yeah i mean we, it was it was a community that existed before yeah. bane but there was something not to blow smoke but like there was something obviously about bane that made it bigger made it deeper made yeah made it more right and it's it I, I don't know i don't have the words to make that but i think a lot of that came out in the dock for sure yeah I and mean, that's but what i'm arguing is that part of what gave bane the chutzpah or whatever to try to be about something maybe that could be a little bit special or a little bit more is actually informed by the feeling of the friends in the house on John Street, where it's just all of yeah. us, like two, like two of the members of Bain live in that house. Zach is literally always over there. I live around the corner. There's a feeling that Bain, in a way, almost was going to represent what we were to each other. Like Bain doesn't make it, doesn't make the community. The community informs bane of like you can be about something deeply deeply introspective and personal and loving your friends and loving hardcore can really be at the forefront of everything else and i think bane comes out of the gate yeah. trying to give that feeling that like there's something really special here just in, in us in the idea of like we're all here in a room together and this music can, has the power to change our lives but i think that that house on John Street and the Chachis and the fucking eyebrows and all of those kids, they inform, yeah. they're the ones who give the idea that like friendship is everything and hardcore is about friendship. And those two things are intrinsically linked and we're, that's what's going to propel this band forward. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably something that the casual Bane fans from across the country or the globe might right. not understand is that it was the people that were never 
necessarily in the bands or just had a very small part. Bishaw, I'm thinking Whittle, that are like this the centerpiece. That's actually a really cool way yeah. to think about it. Bane, is, Bane doesn't they wouldn't have the band wouldn't have existed yeah. without them. And it doesn't are, take the road it takes without them, without that feeling of like, man, there because there was a real you were there for it, a real feeling of like us against the world, you know. Like nothing else matters as much as what's going on in our little friend group here. And you yeah. fucking die for that. And at that exact same moment, Bane is trying to figure out its personality and figure out its voice. And, you know, you know, its sound was going to be its sound, but everything else is still being worked out. And it's all, you know, there's just a feeling of such intense brotherhood and friendship and excitement. We, we were all at an age where we just loved hardcore so, so much. So... But then that takes on your life for yeah two yeah. decades plus. Like what's yeah, that's the real sort of turning point when that when that takes place. Previous to that, when I'm working the dead end job at Minuteman Press and just sort of grinding through the rigors of a 40 hour work week and looking forward to the weekends. I have a living girlfriend at the time. That's you know the one really positive thing in my life is I have you know a real sort of partner. And she's there for me to be, to see me really be in love with books and be in love with film and we share in those things together. But there's just a constant feeling of like, of real dread of that I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I have no idea what I want to be. I'm really not even sure what makes me happy yet. There's a, I just remember a feeling of the sand sifting through the hour glass all of the time of like there being a timer of when I have to I have to figure this shit out what I'm going to do what's going to make me happy I really thought I wanted to write I really thought I was going to find some talent there I thought I was going to you know like Tarantino was happening at this time and the early Coen brothers and these independent guys are making it look very very easy much easier than it actually is I'm reading screenplay you know books on how to write screenplays I remember this this is my image of you then is that if somebody was to give you a million dollars kind of thing, you're making a movie and it's going to be the most bloody, yeah. brutal thing that ever yeah. existed. That's and funny. like that was seemed to be your focus at that point. And I don't know if that was just a, a, a random thought or if that was really Absolutely. what you were that about. That is 100% what I was about. I was obsessed with cinema and sort of the new movement going on in cinema where it was very sort of violence to the forefront things that were you know very inspired by what scorsese had done and francis ford coppola and now these young cats were kind of taking it to a whole new level and they were young and they were giving interviews that you could read and it almost felt like they were talking to you or you knew these guys like you know tarantino's whole story about he didn't go to film school he worked at a video store like so i was very enamored with all of that and it was the only thing that seemed to to make sense for something that was gonna make me happy but it's also like trying it's also like trying to be like the only thing that's gonna make me happy is if i can play on the boston celtics you know like it was like right <laughs> it's, it's gonna be a stardom <laughs> thing regardless well so just in terms of movies yeah this is just random thoughts but were you drawn to a lot of the indie stuff or was it more the visceral stuff at that point like when clerks comes out 
Is there a yeah. draw to that yeah. for you? Or was, are you really into just the no, Tarantino stuff? It was different than the than the Tarantino stuff and the John Woo's and the early Coen brothers, trying to think of some of the other guys. But no, through the 80s, like I'm really into Woody Allen. So there's a there's okay. a streak in me that doesn't need it to be violent. It needs to be well made and it needs to be well written is really the thing. It needs to sort of speak to me on a human level as far as the way the the, the character spoke. And Woody Allen did that better than just about anyone. And he also just, you know, he was dealing with a lot of the subjects that were being dealt with in a lot of the books that I was reading, you know, real soul searching, you know, what's the point of the universe type stuff that I was really fascinated with at that time. But then, yeah, I mean, Reservoir Dogs is probably the most important changer. one for me in that it it did a lot of things that I had always sort of wanted the movies that I loved to do, which is kill everyone at the end and to not have everything wrap up in a pretty little bow and sort of leave you with very deep questions about the gray area between what it means to be good and bad. And, you know, he touched on that in a way that changed everything for me. And I became, yeah, you know, very obsessed with wanting more of that. But at the same time, at that time, I'm really into Kurosawa. I'm really getting into a lot of samurai movies and a lot of the Asian action that's taking place. Okay. And yeah, looking elsewhere for, uh, you know, because there weren't a lot of Tarantinos at that time. You know, you had to really dig. But I had access to that. I had access to a great video store, that one that was on Park Ave. I always forget the name of it, but it was a huge video store that had a huge indie section. The yeah. one by the liquor store over there? I mean, I, I, yeah, mean, yeah. I was in there oh. constantly. I mean, that was my fucking home away from home. Maybe I always forget the name. I'm so mad that I forget the name because I spent so much of my 20s in that, in that place. But anyway... There it was feeling of like I don't know what some it was there was some good it? neighborhoods. It was just a that Highland Street, like greater Highland Street area was awesome for a for a period of like four the five albums years, right like there, right? The albums there albums to think yep. about. Yeah. Yep. Store twenty four was all always like I would take that over the honey farms every time. So like, it was it was always a revolving number of Chinese restaurants. When does it stop so. being a store twenty four? So crazy to hear you. I don't know. It's I mean it's changed hands a number of times since then, since it became something else. But at some point later, Sahara comes yeah. in. At some point, brings you know a little bit of new clientele. I feel like to the area, but not. It doesn't change all sure. that much, kind of thing. Tech pizza, you can get Boynton. cheap pizza. It's not good, yeah, but it's cheap. Boynton's yeah. always good. Yeah. It's funny. I'm writing a book right now and it takes place in Worcester in 1988. And like, it's so funny to be able to talk to someone that knows some of these references. Like, Store 24 plays an integral part to this story. And like, nobody was going to know what that is who, who, who wasn't around back then. It's just gone. No. Yeah. And it was a chain. It's like, how do you not know it was a chain? It's... Anyway, well, there's, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm getting oh, all the memories. I mean, that's what I was hoping to get out of this, too. is some real but... fucking deep, sentimental nostalgia. Well, this is, has nothing to do with anything, but is I have a memory of like, because AJ, there was an apartment where I lived with Blair and Mikey, 
Mikey, sure. 40 Days Rain. And uh, above us were Cushman. Murphy. Brian Murphy, AJ, and yeah. Shanna Barney. That's right over by WPI, so, right? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I think it was Becker Girls yeah. on the first floor, and they hated us. There were, there were a couple of stories. There's a lot of stories in that apartment, but I just remember one where, like, because AJ got really into movies too. I don't know how much of that, if he was into cinema growing up, but like he would go to movies all the time. I just went to the movies yesterday with AJ, by the way. We went, we went to the movies awesome. together last night. Doing? But yeah, he's, he was a big movie fan. He was a big part of my love for movies, was having him as a as a friend at that time. Yeah, that's awesome. I always remember him like, because there was always the dating side of AJ and there was the hardcore kid friend yeah. side of AJ at that point that was my impression and so i remember him like going out with some girl it might have been even like was the castaway or something like something some big movie and he went with a girl and like i remember seeing him the next morning i was like oh how was the movie and the the response being it was the feel-good movie of the year and that that was the code for it doesn't matter. Most of it was bullshit. If I say it's the feel-good movie of the year, it's because that was put up on yeah. some ad, and I had to go see it to be with a girl. <laughs> like it was, oh, it was the feel-good movie of the year. Like that was <laughs> how it broke down in my That's brain. Awful. Anyway, I was like, yeah, but totally, totally. AJ, right? Feel-good movie of the year, and like nothing else. Like he'll just walk out of the room. <laughs> That's it. We were arguing last night, and when, when the credits rolled, of the movie that. That we had watched and he, he makes me laugh he brings me so much joy to talk about film with him because it's just been something we've been doing for so long we don't deeply agree on a lot of things some of the seminal stuff obviously we have in common but he's so funny to debate movies with like i can't watch a movie without thinking about how i'm going to talk about it with aj you know be able to either defend <laughs> it or attack it or come up with some sort of a opinion to be able to discuss with him I mean, he that's but that's so cool to think about like how important these people are in our lives that their opinions matter to us not not necessarily in a way that's going to dictate our lives but like it's it's an important piece this like this relationship with these people and this community right. we've built that's we that they're ever 100%. present you know yeah. no for sure He's still a constant for me. There's talk about him moving to Australia for a couple of years, and it's breaking my heart because we go to a lot of movies together, and it's going to be hard to see him go, but looking like he's going to have to do that for a couple of years anyway. I should probably get a Cool, man. I would love to hear him talk about his uh, what his professional life has been. I still don't quite understand what he does as a job. I'm still not really sure about it. But... All of those... WPI kids in there. Same, coding. yeah. They all just so. kind of do this gray area thing that you don't know, but they all own, they all own nice houses and nice cars. <laughs> so you're, we do Bane. We have a lot of yeah. years of Bane. You get to, a lot of this has been said in interviews and in, in film already, but you get to travel all over for your first yep. time. And how does that feel? Um, Bane sort of answers the question of what is 
my life going to be like? Like, what is going to happen for me that is going to be special or exciting or defining? You know, like I was saying, those earlier years in the 90s where there was just a constant feeling of the sand sifting through the hourglass. I'm able to now see that I was just a creative person. I was a, a person who needed to be able to express themselves didn't quite understand what that even meant you know i didn't i couldn't tell you oh i have all these things inside me i want to share with the world i didn't know that but i'm now able to see it what that general restlessness was through my early 20s and the misery through all of the jobs i worked because i just wasn't cut out for that and then bane starts at a time where i'm a little bit older have done a fair bit of reading some pretty heavy reading and i'm able to bring that into the personality of the band and because of that i think bane gets a little bit more of attention than a lot of the bands around them and some of the attention is focused on the lyrical aspect of the band and that is suddenly making me feel like i know what i'm supposed to sort of be good at i know what i'm supposed to do a little bit but it also bane is just a method to not have to be a real adult. It's also like this escape pod where I can go back to being a teenager, being very sort of seeped in a, a community of mostly young, wide-eyed, optimistic people, which is this sort of thing that I was never able to grow past. I was never able to mature past that. And now it's just like, it's accepting of me in a way that it never had been before before because of this band that I'm in that 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 people really were are responding to and now suddenly yeah the travel aspect is starting to come in and that's just like amazing because I've never been anywhere you know like I previous to Bain yeah. I'd only been to Virginia and to Las Vegas that's it you know I just didn't know anything about the world and suddenly Bain is opening those doors. It's the first time I ever get to the West Coast. And then it's the first time I ever go over seas and all of that. That's all very, very thrilling. But more than that, it's just an idea of like, Bain is a way to stave off having to make the big, tough life decisions, which is something that I was not cut out for, not excited to do the way I've seen a lot of people, even people in bands, be able to do be able to navigate being in a band and also starting a professional life or starting a family or doing the other things for me i was just all in all claws dug fully into being in this band do you does that start to change for you like when when pete steps back or is are you still full in at that point didn't change at all no, never. Uh, Until... I mean, I resented all of it. I resented everyone starting lives outside of, out of Bane in a very sort of, you know, not an outward, I, I wasn't an animal about it, but inwardly I was just like, how isn't this enough for everybody? Like, why, like, what are we doing? Starting families and having kids and getting married. Like, what, like, look at how beautiful this is because, uh, I mean, I was fucked up, you know, like I was just wired differently and I was just so, it was all I needed. You know, I was never the kind of kid who would even want to be in another band, like a side project type thing. I was just like, this was the thing and it worked so well for me and it filled all of these sort of like holes in my life 
gave me meaning. It gave me a feeling of expression. It gave me a feeling of being able to walk into a room and be able to, to sort of confidently be in that room in a way that I just had never had before. I wasn't auditioning anymore. You know what I'm saying? And it, um, yeah. And you always had family yeah. with you. And yeah, they, yeah, more and more as it went along, you know, they really morphed into, you know, being from band members to friends to like my actual brothers, you know, especially you know, my mom dies in my early 20s and then my dad dies midway through Bane. And it's just very much is starting to be proven to me that this is the only family. This is my family, you know? So, yeah. Uh, so I hold on probably too tightly, too long for sure, because suddenly like my thirties are gone. Now I'm into my forties. I haven't learned anything. I have made no advancements in life in a tangible way, other than just like really learning how to do the hardcore band thing. And then, yeah. And then the next thing you know, you're in your forties and guys are having kids and fucking rightly so, but I was never able to keep <laughs> step with them and like, yeah, I'm not trained to do anything. I've never worked a job that I've enjoyed other than Bane. And I had to have a therapist like drill it into my brain that, no, that was your job. Because, you know, she would always say like, you know, love and work. And I would always be like, I've never worked a day in my life, or, you know, and she would be like, right. Your band was your work. Like you did that for 20 years. And yeah. I had to really like dawn on me because for it never for a single second, felt like work to me it felt like i was just like the thing that i would want to do more than anything else would have done it for free the whole way down the line but that doesn't mean it was easy or came without you had, sacrifice you had to show me that right so and that's that's what it is and most of the time like i think you are far from alone in in having those pieces of like blocking out and just getting the tunnel vision and doing that. I did that too. I feel like all of my twenties didn't didn't make any steps towards anything. There wasn't anything coming out of it, you know. But you look back, and there were some hard lessons. And if I, if we look back deeper now with a little more mental clarity, then you know there were there was a lot that was important to us that was. You know things that that made mm -hmm. us who we were that are still important and and huge parts of right. our lives and the people that were important then are still important yeah. to us now and yeah no i mean obviously far more good came along with taking the ride i took with bane than bad but there are some things that were just like you know a lot of things that that people need to do through their adult adulthood got sort of like lost on me, you know, because I was just, I just could just, if I only worried about the next tour, if I only worried about the next time we go out on the road and go do the thing that we do so well together, like then that's all that I need. And that's, that became everything it became my personality. It became my mission statement. It became my, my source of fulfillment. It literally was everything. And, you know, you can see me even as early as the note, which still, you know, the band still has 11 years left. You can see me in like the song end with an ellipsis already starting to struggle with how am I going to let go of this, you know, and there's still 11 more years before I really have to face it until I finally 
have to come face to face with the thing that's been rattling around in the back of my head for years and years that nothing lasts forever and that time is fucking undefeated and merciless and you will eventually be phased out of this you will not be able to stay in this forever even in my 30s i'm already really grappling with the realities there it's like it was all i had it was like the one my one true love i say that in the most earnest way honest way possible it was the one thing that i had every relationship you know romantic or friendship would be thrown immediately immediately on the fire in the face of that and that's i'm not saying that as a i'm not bragging i'm just being very honest with you yeah and i've been able I've, I've yeah. now you know you know bobby is such a good sort of reference point of doing it a different way and i'm able to now you know now that there's no resentment at all i'm able to see the trajectory he took starting a family raising a son and a daughter who mean more to him than anything that i will ever understand you know being able to have done both things yeah. say no to some of the bane stuff in order to be able to have a profession to be able to raise a family own a own a house make smart financial decisions and i'm sort of in awe of him you know like wow he but that's the thing right we can appreciate what other people are yeah and they do at least yeah. at this point that was they were able to do things in their lives that make them happy and maybe we made decisions that we feel good about some we don't feel good about we learn from it but we we're coming from perspective right it takes a lot to process that shit for a lot of us it takes a lot of therapy to get through there to to be able to yeah. to recognize those okay. those bits of what we what do we really have and even if we look at it as an even if it is a negative thing being able to find the positive mm -hmm. pieces in that that mm -hmm. get us for sure just popping into my head now are you still in touch with John Clancy at all? My mom's husband? Yeah. 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 Off and on. How'd you know his last name? Did I say, did I say his name? You said it earlier. Yeah, yeah. I thought maybe you but, knew. Um, but yeah. I, no, I, I, I jot yeah, stuff we're down on, as we Yeah, talk, we're, but, we're friends so. on Facebook. He, he checks in from time to time. Like I said, my brother died and we, he, he and I were in contact for a little while through the course of that. Okay. He's out there. We, we kind of talked a little bit during COVID about maybe me getting up there and spending some time with him. I haven't seen him in a long, long, long time. It might be enjoyable to go up yeah. there and spend some time with him. He was, he was a good guy to my mom. Like he is an important piece of my life in that he, he didn't get to have her for a long time, but for the years that he did have her, he brought her a lot of joy and a lot of peace at a time when she really got to feel good. It. Yeah. She really needs it. Yeah. Yeah. What about Dawn? Yeah, she's still around. Yeah, she's still around. Yeah, she she lives in West Boylston. Yeah, we're not close, yeah. but she's around, and we can we check in on each other from time to time. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I just no, get I curious on no, those I, connections I'm, if I'm they're still there or not. Starting to see what you're what you're doing here, and I I think it's really cool that you're just really interested to just sort of like what's happening with other people and to find real like life lessons in that. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, it's like, there's obviously like community is always a big part of who we are, right? Whether it's hardcore, whether it's a job community, whether it's whatever, right. And nobody makes it alone, but I, I'm always curious on the communities we, we build for ourselves 
and how those things separate out. You know, you can have the Venn diagrams of like all the overlapping pieces and whatnot. But it's always interesting to me that there's always important pieces that whether they're an active part or not are, are always end up being there, even if it's just like a book on the shelf. I may never have to touch it. I've read half of it once and that was important to me. And I can just seeing the spine on the shelf like is enough to remind me of some of that stuff. And that's okay to just have that there. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's cool. I like it. Anyway, we're going to have to wrap up at some point. (laughs) I should have warned you ahead of time. If you get me talking, it can never end. Especially hear my. No, I love it. Like, I'm, I'm hating that this is like a recorded thing. This should have just been a yeah, conversation. Um, I could go for a burrito. So Upton has like zero fucking food. It's the worst. There's like two food places. One of them's decent. It's like you miss those parts of even Worcester. Like Worcester has a lot of good food joints, man. Like how people do it honestly it's like a miracle to me that anybody can live in a place where they can't go get a pizza at two in the morning it's just like fucking (laughs) i am just such a city kid through and through that i just i can't imagine the idea of not being able to just know where you're going to eat at midnight it's crazy to me yeah yeah my uh my wife's a vermont kid and so she's her family's all still from northern vermont they're all up there north of burlington so it's the city is like a nightmare for her she's like the super introvert and what my neighbors are all going to be next to me they're all going to be in little cells next to me like a college dorm like yeah it's it's too funny it's like no no it's great you get to know all the people in the building you know you hang out laundromats on the corner That's funny as fuck. It is funny. Anyhow, so we do we do a lot of Bane. Yeah, Bane takes up the big the big portion of my adult life. Are you able to make ends meet with that? Are you able to pay rent just with that? Or are you having to take side yeah, jobs? There's always needs to be some sort of a little bit of a hustle or some sort of a part-time thing that I kind of you know know that I'm only gonna be able to have for so long before you know, you know, the Bane thing, which, you know, there was never a job that was going to take precedence over whatever touring layup ahead. Right. But what I did is I tried to find um, areas of living that were, I tried to live in situations that would be very affordable for me. I, I didn't allow financial pressure to like be the thing that keeps me up at night. I would, you know, like I, in Baltimore for a while, I lived in a in just like in like a t- tiny little office where they only charged me a couple hundred dollars a month rent because nobody else is going to live in that room. But like I didn't have to I didn't have to, to kick into the bills because I was there for so seldom. I was constantly trying to like find situations like that. Lived on some friends' couches before I moved into this apartment for about a year. Didn't really get it together. And it, I guess it does get timed a little bit. It gets timed with Bain finally starting to make some money, be able to make some financially smart decisions where at the end of tour, there was a little bit of money. But I'm also had become a pretty good poker player 
at that time and I'm starting to be able to make money away from a real nine to five job and yeah to really look at it as a as a means of survival as a means of being able to to pay the bills when when Bain wasn't on the road because Bain didn't or full full time we were never like a nine months of the year yeah. band we would do four or five tours a year which would probably average about a half of a year so there's still six months there where you got to fucking fend for yourself and um if you're a prospective employer a band that's gonna go out out of town for weeks um, at a time every few weeks um, or every even if it's every two months like that's, no, that ends. <laughs> Two thousand and four is when that ends for me. And like Bane does, Bane started touring in ninety eight. So it's actually kind of a small little window there where I'm, you know, ninety eight, ninety nine. I guess into two thousand, I'm still able to keep the the print shop job in Worcester. In two thousand, okay. I moved to Baltimore, and I guess we have a couple years where I don't have to find a job, and then I do have to find a job, and I'm working at a another print shop in downtown Baltimore. And then the Bain stuff gets so busy that they can't actually, you know, what's funny. It's actually not true. The reason that I lose that job is because I have to come home to watch the Red Sox play in the world series. What it is. <laughs> I, I had just gotten back from a tour. He was fine with me doing the tour. Then the Red Sox beat the Yankees in 04. And I'm like, I had just watched the Red Sox Yankee series by myself with no baseball fans around me while back here in Worcester, like all of my friends are losing their minds waiting for us to finally win a world series in the Yankee series. While thrilling was also very miserable for me because I had to just go through it alone. I didn't have anyone to share in that with, and I'm just not going to do it to myself again for, for, for our, for the world series. So I tell my boss, I'm going to yeah. go home for that week. And he's like, you can't, I can't let you go home. <laughs> go watch baseball with your friends i just let you do a five-week tour and held the job for you and then i told him i quit and that was like that which is weird right because his perspective on this seems very reasonable as a person just trying to make shit happen and you're like absolutely not i'm going that is the story the of my life is that the other person being very reasonable very rational very much with my best interest <laughs> in mind and me just being like, and yeah, you give him this i was like well, that's it for me and that was the last time I punched a time clock until this year. I guess maybe it was last year. Like I don't, I then go off grid from 04 until very, very recently. Just like completely like everything is a hustle. Yeah. Just like a series of whatever little weird things I have to do for my friends to get paid and make ends meet. And, but poker was, a very big part of that, especially through the late, you know, 06, 07, 08, like poker is wide open at that time. Players are, it's like internet poker has exploded. Most players are very, very terrible. Okay. Money was much easier to get a hold of for me back then. And I'm like, all of a sudden I have a lot of money. So what, I mean, my perspective is card games, like, random weekly card games at apartments mm -hmm. and you know like a few of us you know throwing in our 10 bucks and losing and walking mm -hmm. away going to bed and some of you being up mm -hmm. until 4 a.m or mm -hmm. whatever like still sure. playing cards and it's uh how does that transfer into 
like is there just like a tournament that you decide to enter or like how does that become a a thing where like let me see if i can make some money at this or is it just going to the casino a couple of times and that that steamrolls into tournaments i'll tell you i love i love telling the story it starts out just playing home games with actually started with that crew of route 20 kids we would play penny any poker and i really liked it my dad was a poker player my dad was a gambler the whole thing with my dad not being around when i'm in my young my dad is off gambling my dad is off in vegas and in Atlantic city and really being a, a a fucking gambler um but i don't understand what that means i don't know what it means to be good or bad at cards i'm just playing cards with my friends and i'm into that and then that transitions into the 10 yard fight guys they get really into poker around the time that like the movie rounders comes out they've got home games going on out in boston i'm still living in worcester but now aj's going to school in boston there's more reasons for me to come out and see the hang out with guys in boston and a lot of it they're they're playing cards and i keep losing money i keep like losing a hundred dollars and i'm like this is stupid my dad knows how to play cards i'm just gonna have him teach me how to stop losing at cards and I go and I ask him, and he knows that my my mother's already gone at this point, but he just knows that she would hate it if he taught me how to be a gambler. He just literally says, your mother will roll over in her grave if I teach you how to do this. I don't want to do it. It's like, well, you're going to have to because I'm going to keep playing cards, and I'm, I'd rather learn how to lose money than win right. money. I'd rather learn how to win money than lose money. And my dad is a sort of like, if you're going to do it, you do it right. You work hard, you study. That was like his mentality with everything. So he kind of puts me through like a bit of a training program to like teach me the ins and outs of the game of poker. And now I'm at the age where I can start to get down to Foxwoods on my own. I start playing in the lowest buy-in games they have available there. And I'm just very, very hooked, man. I'm like in love with the game. I'm in love with the idea that if I make more good decisions than bad, that I actually walk out of the casino with more money. And it's just sort of like all kind of clicking for me at a time where poker is very wide open and that there aren't a, there aren't a lot of studied players playing. Most of the players are still playing very recreationally, but I'm starting okay. to read books about poker and feeling like I'm a part of an elite class of poker player that is trying to exploit this game for all that it's worth then online poker explodes i'm now able to play just like on a computer out of my bedroom and is that is just i'm gonna jump in is that like so all you're studying to learn poker since this is not my area of expertise this is is it more the studying the cards or studying the people and like the the reactions kind of thing because i feel like learning to play at people at a table would feel very different for me than playing a computer. It's, you know, know, a lot of people say that like, Oh, I could never play it. I don't have a very good poker face or what is it that makes you good about poker? Is it that you can like read things in, in other people, you can look at them and know if they, if they're bluffing or if they really have a big hand. And that's not, that's not really what it is. It's more about understanding probabilities. It's really about understanding Mm -hmm. some, pretty simple mathematics there's a lot of it this is going to sound crazy a lot of it is being learning to trust your gut trust sort of like an inner instinct and to some degree it's just sort of like watching tendencies in people like not so much that 
Yeah. Oh, I can read in this person's face that they're bluffing. But you can play with somebody. And as you play with them throughout the evening, you can see this person has a very conservative style. The money obviously means something right. to this person. They are not looking to gamble in situations where they don't want to gamble. And you, when you realize that, you can start to turn it against them. And the opposite can be true. You can play with a guy who's like, this guy is fearless. He does not care. He's willing to lose big pots. So you have to adjust your game based on their style. It was always amazing to me how many players you would play that don't even think on that level yet. They're not even, they're only worried about the two cards they have in front of them. And that's their relationship with poker. But as you get deeper and deeper into it, you start to remove those two cards that you have in your hands. They almost become like not the most interesting thing going on. There's a lot of other interesting things going going on that you that become normal to you and you learn how to exploit and that is what makes the difference at the end of at the end of the year not at the end of a single session in one single poker session any player can lose or win there's no you know on in the short term luck plays an enormous part of the results of of poker if you and i wanted to play one poker hand right now you would have every chance in the world of winning that hand if we played one if we played three there's a very good chance you would win all three but if i made you sit there and play poker with me for 10 hours you right. cannot win you will not be able to beat me at poker and that's sort of the mindset that takes place it's not about short-term results it's about being in in as many situations as you can over and over and over and over again and knowing that you're going to bank that that edge that if every time all of the money goes into the pot, I'm a 53% favorite, I want to put my money in every time. And every time I lose, which is still 47% of the time, is going to be fine because I know over the course of a million trials, I'm going to have that 3% edge. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? It does. It's crazy to think about it that, that way. But the it's... game of poker is being able to identify situations where you have an edge, load in as much money as humanly possible, and... Do it over and over. And then there becomes an emotional component where like poker is a very, very emotional game in that you're going to lose that hand 47% of the time, which is very fair, a large chunk of the time. And that 47% can present itself over long stretches. You can just not win a coin flip you know, for a very, very long time. And it starts to get daunting. And then what happens is now you're fighting against yourself. You're fighting against your worst tendencies, your discipline, right. your emotions. All that self-doubt, yeah. So to be a good card player, a lot of things have to click into place, and it takes some study. It takes real discipline and a real hunger inside to, like, yeah, to understand the uh, yeah. the lay of the land is that, you know, the good players don't always win, and you almost have to embrace that. You have to love that about the game because in order for the bad players to win – is what keeps the bad players coming back. You know what I'm saying? Like you need players who don't really yep. know what they're doing to have those days where like they win all the money because then they become convinced that they're good at and they'll come back. That they can win. Yeah. It's kind of a gross life. Sometimes right. when I talk about it this deeply, I'm like, God, I've put so much of my time and effort and heart and soul into this pretty disgusting way of But it's but it's a learning piece. It's an education piece. You've done you, it's something that you've dedicated a good a, a number of years to doing to learning 
ins and outs of and people do that with everything in life i'm actually drawing i mean just the way you said it there like with this 53 yeah. percent to 47 percent kind of ratio i'm thinking billionaires and big business like is how they're looking at these things is like not not, not to push no, there's a category, saying that goes around where people like, say I that have, if you're very good at poker then you you would probably have been very good at other aspects of business and you shouldn't be playing poker the really great poker players have something in their brain where they could they should be doing other things where they don't have to risk such yeah a life of gambling you know a life of gamble yeah but that's i mean that's all businesses like if you're going to try and open a restaurant like you're almost guaranteed to you're going to lose whether it's this year or next it is year all, it's it is all gamble kind of stocks thing, all of it really i guess you're right it was just a way to be able to stay on the road. For me, it was just a way to not have to go back to Minuteman Press. Any way that I didn't have to go back to punching a clock, to getting up at nine in the morning and fucking rushing off to work because I'm already a half an hour late, feeling that sense of nervousness that my boss is going to like give me the look or call me into his office. Any decision I could make to avoid that, which Bain was very, very much a part of, like, you know, the really grabbing onto Bain was just keeping me from having to go back to the tediousness, the hell of that life. I hated that life. And going all the way back to the Acapulco, to those red hot dishes I had to receive, I was yeah. just never cut out for it, man. I just wasn't. And poker allowed me a, an alternate way of, of, of existing, of working hard, of getting financial gains and doing it on my own terms, doing it when I wanted to yeah. for as, you know, you could start can go in when you want you can leave when you want there's no boss you you know you're your own person you're not paying taxes you i mean i was very much off grid you can pay taxes there are gamblers who do it on the books i was never one of those guys but yeah that was uh yeah that carried me through there have been other job opportunities that have opened up to for me that i have taken and done to you know did a stint doing this thing did a stint doing that thing but poker was always there for sure until very, very recently, honestly, until, until the coronavirus really. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your day to day look like now? Well, yeah, I mean, I do two, I have two little sort of part-time gigs. Both of them are under the table work. One is for a friend who has a real estate company. He buys, flips houses and I help him out in the office with some of the office work there. And then I've also through that guy, Sal, you mentioned, he's taught me how to be a merch seller for some of the bigger venues around Boston, selling merch and getting that sweet tip money that's going around the whole world right now with the iPad and the swiping and tapping your card. And uh, I live in an apartment with two friends and the rent is very very cheap i don't have a car i don't have a credit card i don't have a family so like i don't need a lot of money to live what i consider to be a comfortable life you know the poker thing was getting pretty amazing pre-covid in that a casino had finally opened here in boston the encore opened it's the first time i ever lived in a city that had a casino where I live. I've never experienced that before. I've always had to get a ride or take a bus or plan a trip to Vegas. This was the first time where I could ride yeah. my bike and be in a card game in 20 minutes. 
and was really excited to see what that was going to look like. We had it for 10 months before it closed down. And I was making the sort of money where I was already starting to think like, maybe I can get my own, maybe I can sweat 2000 a month rent. Like I was starting to see the results. Like I'm going to be fine. I'm going to make plenty of money. And then COVID happened and the casino shut down and I was shut in here. And thankfully the government was like, you know, giving us all plenty of money. I took a bunch of that and was like stockpiling it because like I said, my rent is so, so cheap here. And uh, yeah, in that two years is when I decided that I didn't know how happy poker was actually making me. And that I didn't know if I was going to be in that much of a rush to get out of it. And I started writing this novel something that I've always wanted to do and finally had no excuse anymore. There was no more reason for me to keep putting it off. I mean, that's the thing that COVID forced in all of us, you know, to really look at the uh, how temporary life can be and how you just have no idea when things are going to change and what are the things that we want to do with our lives. Yeah, And yet forced me to finally, you know, I thought, you know, would always be writing short stories and, you know, made it various attempts at screenplays when I was younger. But this, you know, I really wanted to try to do it differently this time where there'd be a discipline there and a writing every day. And, you know, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to start this and I'm going to finish it. Nothing is going to keep me from finishing it. And there was also a feeling that, like, I have a built-in readership. You know, how many writers get to say, well, I know a couple hundred people are going to read this, maybe even a thousand, like, for sure, yeah. there are a lot of amateur writers out there who will never get to say that. And I became very aware of like, why would you waste that? Like you can write something and people are going to read it because they like the words that you've written thus far. Like fucking do this. And I wasn't going to be able to take poker as seriously as I had before COVID and also write the book. Poker just takes way too much out of you emotionally and hourly, you know, you really got to be there a lot. And this all sort of, you know, aligns itself with me meeting Sal and me getting these merch gigs and me having put enough money in the bank from the stimuluses and from the monthly $600 that we were getting, which I obviously, I can't believe that I was able to get because I hadn't, I hadn't punched a time clock since 2004 i'm thinking there is no way in the world they're going to give me fucking anything are you crazy and everyone around right. me is like try just you know you got to try they're giving the money away just file your taxes say you didn't work last year and see what happens and i think i you know i told some i told them i was a musician or whatever and then the next thing i know like yeah i'm making in a week more than what my rent is in a month just being given to me and i'm just like putting it in the bank and just like so kind of, you know, several different, and also I had made a ton of money in that 10 months at Encore where I just knew I was going to be able to, and I'm still sort of kind of coasting, you know, like I do have the merch jobs are huge and the, and the hustle I do with my friend is helping me to pay the rent and me not having to be stressed about like my bank account hitting zero, which is something that I've always kind of like danced with until very, very recently until. Yeah, until, I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe a year before the pandemic is when it started to feel like, oh, I actually have some money in the bank now. You know, like if everything fell apart, I could pay rent for a year type of a feeling. It's something I've, I'd yeah. never known before that. It's, yeah, I, it's, I, I've never been in that point where it's, I mean, it's having a mortgage, I feel like is a, 
feels like a, a a crushing thing sometimes when you when you look at that but it's no different and you talk to people now and it's like people can't get a mortgage and they're paying astronomical rents and they can't get a mortgage for less so money so dark that's, right that, now that's it's a whole nother so dark conversation but that's just scary but to be able to say you've got enough in the bank to continue as yeah. you are like dude you're you're better than any accountant I've ever I mean, I don't know how I, I got lucky, but yeah, there is a feeling right now that there's like nothing that I couldn't buy if I really wanted it. There's nothing that I want to buy, but there is a general feeling of calmness of just like, and that's when I'm at my happiest. Anytime I have to stress about mon money is when my life is at its darkest. And if I, the less that that's in the forefront and I, you know, like I said, I've had to design my life in a way where I'm just not spending a lot of money where there aren't a lot of expenses that I'm forced to face, you know, and sometimes I have to say no to yeah. things and don't buy a lot of things and don't need expensive, nice things. And that all is part of the idea of like, but I don't have to get up at nine o'clock in the morning or fucking seven 30 in the morning and rush off to some job right. that I can't stand. And those two things, they, one needs to exist in order for the other to happen, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's, I mean, we can go back to at least in, in our age group of looking at, at those old hippies, right. Of like being able to, to do what you want to make you comfortable and happy and not needing more. Right. And there's, and then there's a certain element of, of punk rock and hardcore that comes as a part of that, that a lot of us are not able to live. Right. And it, does it feel weird to be the shining example of that? <laughs> feel weird. Like, it feel, no, I don't feel I don't like a lot of money, but I but I'm not uncomfortable. I don't. I don't feel like it feels irresponsible to me to give anyone advice about how to live the sort of life that I've lived. You know, <laughs> like I've done a lot of just sort of like walking through the raindrops, or like we were saying at the outset of this, just having your ass to the wall and having to fucking figure it out, man. Just yeah. having to desperately try. Like, I remember having to go across town to a kid who was my friend, but not a really close friend, and ask him if I could move into that apartment where, and, and live in that little fucking office, that sliver of a room for the cheapest rent that they could offer me so that Bane could continue to tour. You know, like, and it, it meant having to put stuff into storage. It meant having to put, to pile things into the Bane rehearsal space in Worcester when I was in Baltimore, like clothes and things that i just would not be able to fit into this house and living there for maybe three years just like living in like a tiny little room that had wow. that could barely fit a futon but knowing that i would be able to tour and i wouldn't have to worry about money you know that would just like not have to worry about like how to make rent because it was so so cheap but you were you had enough forethought to appreciate what was valuable to you and and to and there was a survival instinct there that i had you know that i like to believe came when my dad used to let me go and not have a curfew and you just had to learn to like think on your own feet and you're on your own in this fucking world and you got to figure it out there wasn't there was never any feeling there was no trust fund there was you know my parents didn't have any money there was never right. a feeling that well if you fail you can always go home that was not there was no going home you have to make this work and there have been low points for sure. I mean, you know, it sucks to be sleeping on your friend's couch and not knowing when you're going to move on or what you're going to do next. And like, you know, that's not a good feeling. 
but I, you know, I had to put myself through it. And then finally we found this place. We found, you know, kind of got a miracle situation in a really cool neighborhood in Boston and the rent has stayed reasonable. We've been here now for 14 years. And I like, I cling to it the same way I clung to Bain. You know, it's just like, I can't let go of this. If this falls apart, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I'll go fucking live in Bangkok, Thailand before I start paying real rent or like fucking giving all of my worth to some fucking landlord. You know, I will not be able to, I don't know what I'll do, but we don't talk. About We're in a good place right now. <laughs> let's exactly, keep the positivity exactly. um real quick so when you mentioned you're yeah. writing a book when we had we had talked about it real quick before um i told you about it in brighton i mean in, in austin that day i think i probably did i think you told me about it in uh that did I? that ralph show yeah um and it was when you were when i was like when you were like oh yeah i'm i'm, I'm writing a book and my head went right to 25 years pat prior it's like oh this is gonna be the bloody yeah. screenplay and then you were like yeah it's this coming of age story based in worcester and uh and then my head went to like that that aj line it's the feel good yeah, movie yeah. of the year like, <laughs> it was like whoa like there's been a like that to me said that there's been a ton of change in your brain in your life of experiences of what's important and what's not and what what you want to put out right. to the world well i still have stories in me where i want everyone to shoot everyone oh i'm sure <laughs> this isn't that story uh, you know and it's it's funny it, it, it just i just had to pick one you know i have a notepad of like five or six different ideas and when i decided well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to fucking write a novel. I'm going to figure it out and I'm not going to stop till it's done. I had to kind of go through that list and be like, well, wh which one? And this was the one that I've had kicking around in my brain for the longest. And I feel like I knew these kids the most and having had been out of Bain and out of, yeah, you know, really being very, very sort of out there in the middle of the scene, it felt like it would be fun to kind of revisit to be able to write about what it was like at the beginning. Cause these, these are kids that are, you know, just opening their eyes to hardcore and skateboarding and going to shows and all the stuff we talked about at the beginning of this interview. This is, this is their story. You know, this is very much a story. It just happens to be set at a place that is real. Like the kids aren't real. None of the situations they go through are real, but the, the Galleria is there and the reflector pool and the book behind it is there in store 24 is there salisbury street is there like it is set in a place that isn't going to mean a lot to most of the people that read it but the U's and the eric commissioners and the aj's they're going to feel you know a little bit more of a personal connection to it for sure but yeah it's not a scorched earth story it's it's a sad story it doesn't end with a big pretty bow tied on it i'll never be able to write a story like that but it's yeah i did have to like yeah, I had to really come to terms with who I am now and how I've changed and how I've grown. And I don't believe that every story has to end with just like, you know, bullets just ripping through bodies. And just there was another way to be able to wrap this one up. And I'm really happy that I was able to get there because even this story at its earlier stages was so much more savage and so much darker and more hopeless. And through really getting down there into the nitty gritty with these kids in the story, I, 
I found a different way to to end things for them. What stage is it at now? <sighs> I knew you were going to ask me that. I was hoping you were going to ask me that. I'll tell you what. Two weeks ago was a great stage in that it finally, after many, many drafts in three years of writing this, I was able to give 100 pages to a small group of people, finally, people who had shown real interest, who had been supportive, and I want to see it when it's ready, who had been checking in with me for three years now. How's the thing going? How's the thing going? Finally, I was able to show them something that I wasn't embarrassed of. That was huge. But the most current stage, which is the last three days, has not been great. And it's just been, this is just what it is, man. If anything, you know, doing this for three years, I've I've come to learn that there are real severe emotional ups and downs in this and the yeah. ability to be able to face the work and feel creative and feel inspired and other times just feel wildly insecure and that this isn't good and what am I doing yeah. and that this is not a significant piece of work at all. Everyone is going to laugh at you type of thing. And is this coming from feedback? The feedback's from been them? good. I mean, it hasn't been at, it hasn't been a lot of feedback and I kind of safely, I, I was aware of who I was giving this, these hundred pages to, and I was giving it to people. Was, so you, you insulated yourself a little bit. I was bit. looking for people to tell me that it was good and to, to keep going. So I gave it to like the Pete Chilton's of the world, you know, who don't even right. understand what tough love is, you know, like, but they're going to be supportive and they're going to help you out. And, and I needed it, you know, it, writing a book is so fucking lonely and it's such a long journey and it, it you are so isolated that you do need eventually somebody to give you a little push, a little bit of wind in your sails and get you to the next step. I w just, I wasn't going to be able to make it to the end alone. So I needed to get to a place where I could show some people and maybe they would be like, this is, this isn't good. You're, you know, you have so, so long to go. But there's a confidence in me where I knew, I knew working as hard as I've been working on it, that it's not, it's not a mess. Like I was able to see through Bane lyrics, what it took to get a song to be strong, how many drafts I had to do. Like there was never a Bane song that just kind of, I wrote once and was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to put this out into the world. I had to write it, rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it. I remember coming home from work while we were writing Give Blood. And my living room was just a mess of crumpled pieces of paper. It was just like, you know, Annie Up might have gone through 25 drafts of just like trying to finally get it right. And seeing that that's the way I work, that is the way I write. And that's what it's been like with this book, which is over 200 pages of just like, I didn't get it right the first time or the second or the third. And, but slowly as I just stuck with it and did not, lose track of the promise that I made to myself that I am going to finish this. It started to take shape. And finally, late last year, it started to feel like the way Bane songs would feel like, oh, there's not a lot left to change here. Like I'm getting to a place where I think I may be able to start to show yeah. this to people. So that was pretty exciting. So the first hundred pages out there. Saying it, saying it like that makes me feel a little uplifted. Yeah. Like, just like, okay. It's getting to a place where you know that you're a little more comfortable with it. That's yeah. Well, I was. That's I, a success I got to right see there. it in action with Bane. I got to see those songs like really mean something to people, and to kind of take on a new life where I had felt like I'd taken these as far as I can go. These are done. I'm going to fit these to the music now. 
then you put it out there on a record and then kids are pulling you aside and talking to you about those lyrics and they take on this whole other life and you're able to go back and see like oh really it really did work i worked really hard on that song i knew what i wanted to say i took some chances there took some you know like poetic chances there that maybe not a lot of hardcore lyricists have taken and i'm being celebrated because of that and it's because of the very very hard work that went into it so that you know i couldn't have wrote this book i'm doing now at any other time in my life i needed to be on the other side of all the bane stuff getting some feeling of like yeah man if you put your fucking head to it you can do it like you can you know we, yeah. I, I wrote those songs so that informed a lot of the work here and it's been hard because i have a really i have a good bullshit bullshit detector and i have read back on passages and just been like this is garbage this is not even close to being ready but instead of giving up i just have been like let's do it again let's do it well that says something too right because even with a good bullshit detector like it doesn't mean you always see your own and being able to be honest with yourself for that shit shows a lot of you know the probably the person that you've yeah, become over the so. years we're gonna see i'm still not sure this you know the, today's phase is bad last two days have been very very bad hoping to have a better day today but two weeks ago getting that into the hands of some friends james saboni our bass player he's been very excited very supportive we had a real long like two hour talk he read the whole thing and it was just so fun getting to like you know it's like more real now it's just like it, it's not just existing only on my computer in my it's out there right. people want to know what happened next people have opinions about these characters so it's exciting and yeah and now they're invested sure. they're and they're invested in not just your characters but like in making sure that you bail get on this, this done. now it will be such a colossal failure if i bail on this now that's part of it too is like now we got to finish but I'm feeling I'm feeling very, very motivated. Like the hundred pages took a while to get ready, but now the next hundred pages is coming together quickly. Like it's getting it's getting close. Cool. Like I think in a couple months I'm gonna have to start making decisions about finding an editor, like a real professional editor, what it's gonna cost to pay them, finding an editor who does not care about Bane, who is not gonna softball me, but somebody whose job it is to fucking make this book better and to pay them whatever I need to pay them. And then after that, it's going to be like, do we self-publish this? Do we send this out to some small independent houses? Like, I don't know. I've worked harder on this than I've ever worked on anything in my life. I would like to be compensated for that financially, even if it means <laughs> having to DIY it and literally put it out myself and reap all the benefits for all the hard work. I think I may be willing to do that, but we'll see. We'll see. I don't know how... I no longer know how good it is. You know, I don't know. I'm blind. You know, you get so invested that you're able to, you can't keep any perspective at all. I, I have no idea. I know that I'm going to finish it. I know that I'm <laughs> going to put out a book. That's going to be it. But there's other pieces you can't keep your brain from going to. That's like, oh, well, if this happens and you, you do the all daydreaming the and it's every day. I, wouldn't every have day. I love day. the thought of being flown here or there to like be able to talk to kids or read a passage. Like it's such a fun daydream. For this being another way to get on the road to be in airports and hotels it's just like that's the dream but i don't know you know we'll have to wait and see you're still i mean you're dating yourself saying it's you know going to be in print as opposed to on somebody's nook or people iPad. reading it on their phones they like james <laughs> told me he read it on his phone in the airport and i was like 
Oh, you're cringing. You're cringing as he's saying. You don't understand how much work I put in it. Don't leave me <laughs> You got to hold the page. Yo, Pete Chilton, such a yeah. sweetheart. He printed it out. He like sent me it bound. He's like, here's your book. If you want me to send you copies, I'll send you copies. He's such a sweetheart. I was like, that's what I want. Reading it on your telephone the in the airport. I was like, oh, man. But that's, I know I don't know James, but I'm, part of me is feeling like that's, he's able to accept things that way probably far greater than i would be able to he's able to lock himself into that and and process we had we had a great talk he's his was my favorite sort of interaction that i've had with someone who's read the book because there's so much hardcore in it there's so much just like of loving the music in this book it's not going to be for a lot of people it's going to go over a lot of people's heads but the people who live that experience are it's going to really speak to them. And it was, it, it was, it was nice to be able to talk to him about it as someone who understands a lot of the references and has had those same conversations with his friends about being in love with certain bands or certain records, things like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to you get on with your day. You get on with your day. To Sorry to take up so long. Up. Thank you for it. No, no. Before we get anywhere. So I always wrap this up with four questions. So, you are not going to be prepared for these. So this me. is going to be awesome. So uh, did you ever watch Inside the Actor's yeah, Studio? Lipton. Yes. So I he used to have a 10-question questionnaire that he had lifted from a Frenchman. So I lifted four questions from his 10-question <laughs> questionnaire. You're, you're trying no, to I'm just trying. <laughs> I just remember the feeling of never envying the interview subjects. I remember the feeling of being like, my God, that's a tough one. <laughs> so I'm a little nervous. What hit me? So it's only four, and there, it, reality is it's two. But what turns you on? Be it from a creative, spiritual, emotional place, whatever. Vulnerability is a big one. Like really being able to fucking let your guard down a little bit. What turns you off? Self-obsession, bullies. I really don't like that at all. Uh, oh, this isn't a one-word thing, right? I don't have to just give you a one. No, sorry no, about that. No, yeah, just yeah, yeah. People who are just so full of themselves, who just like need to f- take all the air out of everything. It's very difficult for me. I, I've, I just think there's, I don't know. I'm, I'm a guy who as we talked about comes from the idea of community, you know, and not of the self that, that I see more and more of that, of just like people being able to just fill a whole room with themselves. I'm not too into that. What profession other than your own, would you like to attempt? It's crazy. How, how, my mind just goes so blank. I mean, other than being a writer, it's too late to be a baseball player. Uh, <laughs> what would I do? Hired hitman. <laughs> I mean, writer is something you're. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You technically haven't completed definitely it. Definitely the thing that I have attached myself to more than anything else, including like being very willing to put poker on the back burner in a way that I haven't in a very, very long time. But I don't know. I mean, I mean, I love the, I love the travel, you know, I love the idea of being transient of being in hotels and packing a bag and fucking having stamps on my passport. 
I love that. So yeah, international hired assassin, I think is really you can count me in on. You're you're the first person that's answered assassin. (laughs) (laughs) What last one? What profession would you not like to attempt? Any sort of a corporate being a you know a cog in the bigger system and understand where everything is about profits you know just like yeah just sort of being in that sort of day-to-day how do we maximize taking the most money away from the public in order to benefit the people that are above us you know like the whole thing just keeps going up and we need to please them and they need to please the person above them. And I don't know. I just feel like I would just be so miserable being like in that world of the bottom line, being about trying to make the person above me the most money while also, you know, stressing about trying to make the most money for myself by pleasing them. And there's just like, yeah, just a, it's a a black hole, but it's, is that what you do? You're not a corporate cog. You're not fucking going in. Oh, no, no, fuck no. Well, like education, like the more you learn about that is a scary piece of cogs and the, the people that are handing the shit down. It's it's seems yeah. very corporate when I when I look at it from yeah. that standpoint. But I talked to some teachers and it's like daunting to hear of the things they're having to deal with and the things that they're the, the, the umbrella that are above them that Dude, makes their, their lives so, so difficult. It's miserable. And like. They, like for people that are just trying to help kids and teach kids, like how do you? These are our kids. Why do you not want them to be able to do? Why the are best you making it difficult? And why are they not the most highly paid people on the face of the planet? Why are they not the most important people? Yeah. It's just crazy. When I talk to teachers that yeah. are barely making ends meet, that are stressed all the time, and they're doing yeah. the most noble work there is, and just having to swim upstream the whole time, it seems heartbreaking yeah there was this uh this lewis black thing where it's like you know at the end of his one of his stand-ups this is probably 20 years ago but he's like taking questions and stuff and somebody's like talk about teachers having the summer off and he's like what the fuck are you talking about like teachers you don't want to pay them you you don't want them to have time off like if i had all these kids like you would the only way I would be able to stay sane is having those months off during the summer. You need to recover. He's like, and the basis is you want your kids to have a good education. You pay the teachers. That's it. Pure and simple. Like it, it wasn't a comedy bit. It was just, you know, him being on like a, the edge of a, of a rant. I feel like so much sense. of what's going on in this country, like the real feeling of where witness a downfall can be rooted to how we've, how we've treated our teachers, how in, I just 100%. feel like it, goes directly to that 100%. the idea of where we yeah who we decided to pay a lot of money to who we decided to treat as heroes it's crazy they should be the most highly paid people 100 100 because what's who else is going to have the biggest impact on your community so period at, as a as a nation or right down to your small town like it's so yeah. so clear it's it's crazy Anyway, we brought a full circle back to school. I think this is good. We did good. <laughs> <laughs>